Welcome to this special episode of 21st Century Saints, our podcast and live stream series for members of, those affiliated with, those who hang around the region of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints here in the United Kingdom and around the world. It's great to have you with us. And this is a completely different time slot for us because we really wanted to, um, yeah, Get, get this very special guest as much time as we can possibly give him. Bill Real, welcome to 21st Century Saints. Thank you it for coming is, on. Yeah, it's my honor to be on with you guys. I've just heard such good things about you guys, and I'm just really excited to have this conversation. Thank you. We we are huge fans of, uh, as are most of our audience, huge fans of Mormon discussions and all of the great work that you guys are doing. We stay up super late every Wednesday night, um, wake up with Mormon hangovers, um, <laughs> <laughs> because we just we just love the content. And it's, tonight's is going to be. We'll, we'll give a shout out to tonight's episode a little later, but tonight's looks really really good, um, yeah. as always. Okay, shall we just jump? Before we jump in, actually, I want to just, we, we've been saying this for the past few weeks. Um, a few people have reached out to ask how you can support us um, financially, which is just a delight. Thank you for doing that. Alana and I aren't quite in that zone yet. I mean, I, maybe at some point we will be. Um, we're getting very, very busy with all of this stuff. So your willingness to donate is so appreciated. If you um, want, though, to channel that um, that that intention somewhere where it will be well used, we're, we've been asking people for the past few weeks if you guys will donate to... Um, uh, the work that's been done with the Mormon discussions lineup. We especially want our Maven to be able to go full time, our Bell, our RFM. Yeah, we need the content. So yeah, if you guys uh, jump over and we'll link to where you can do that in our show notes. Um, we've also got Nemo the Mormon. He's um, you know he he'll accept some super chats, things like that. So do reach out. But thank you so much for your willingness to support this really great work. Um, I thought you were going to ask us to pay tithing. <laughs> well, we don't have to ask in, in, our, in our area. They volunteer. <laughs> anyway, um, let, let's just jump right in. Um, we have been revisiting some of the um, older podcasts that are out there and looking a little bit, kind of revisiting your journey. Um, yeah. I've been, been a fan for a while and, you know, I, I loved your earlier content and, but I wasn't really able to, it's like you've always been this, Bill. And when I go back and listen to the older stuff, the difference is so stark now. You can really, yeah. really see it. So first of all, I want to ask, what was, what was your draw? You're a convert to the church, right? What was, what was the draw? Why, why were you here? Yeah. When, uh, when I was 17 years old, I met, uh, a girl in a adjoining school system and we started dating and her dad got me interested in Mormonism. And from the very moment I stepped foot into a chapel, it was, it was magical. It was the first time in my life that people kind of raised me up and valued me and gave me attention. And um, Mormonism does a really good job when it thinks it's going to get somebody in the church of loving them and giving them, um, praise and uh 
acknowledgement, giving them chances to, to do things, to give a talk or to teach a lesson. And so, uh, and, and also too, I, I had spiritual experiences. I read the whole Book of Mormon before I was baptized and took the praying about it seriously and had what I would call a, a magical experience. And so I had this spiritual testimony. This place made me feel at home. And uh, from the moment I got baptized, these folks put me in uh, leadership positions. I was my first calling uh, like a week after baptism was assistant ward mission leader. Oh, wow. And uh, before long, I was in the elders quorum presidency. Next thing I know, I'm uh, in a young men's presidency. Then I'm uh, a counselor and a bishopric. And then I'm the bishop of the ward at 29 years old. And it was the ward I joined and they were my family and they were the people that I cared about. And it was really magical those first 10 years. And doctrinally, um, so, you know, you have really good feelings, you have special feelings. Doctrinally, was was there favorite things about the church belief system that you really liked? Because well, you did the... a really good job of defending, like back then, you yeah. you were you were a whole apologist. You know, you, yeah, yeah. You know, I was on. with Fair Mormon. Yeah, I was with Fair Mormon in 2013. The things I loved, um, as a 17-year-old, I deeply related to Joseph Smith going into the Grove. I had kind of my own Grove experience. Um, I liked the families being together forever because I, I loved the girl I was dating. I ended up marrying her in the Washington DC temple sealed for all time and eternity. And, uh, I, I loved the history. I was, I went to college to be an elementary teacher. I ended up dropping out cause my grades were just a little less than they should have been. And it's, a, that's a whole nother story and I'm happy to tell it, but it's a long story. But um, I ended up dropping out. But in college, I, I, and also in high school, I loved history classes. I took psychology classes. Um, I, I read a lot. I read a ton of books. And I just loved history. History I've always been fascinated with. In Mormon history, from the very get-go, I knew it was messy. I, um, before I even got baptized, I read Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History and uh, had a struggle with that book got that issue, those issues resolved. And from that point forward, from immediate, you know, the point of baptism, I was reading apologetic material. I would go into the college computer center and I would uh, read everything on the internet from, uh, there was a site called New Jerusalem. It was Book of Mormon Answer Man. Uh, Fair Mormon was kind of very early on at that point. Uh, I got the, the pamphlets from farms, which ended up becoming the Maxwell Institute. I just loved reading all this stuff. And what I discovered was that Mormonism had problems and most of the people didn't even know, they didn't even know what the problems were. And I kind of got a, an adrenaline rush knowing them, right? I'm the guy in yeah. the ward and maybe even in the stake who knows the issues. And so the missionaries are constantly taking me out with them to, to talk to their investigator who's got their pastor with them or to uh, come to a home where these people had really tough questions. And I was the guy that was kind of sought out to, to resolve those for people. And so I knew there were problems that people didn't know. I knew there were answers to the problems, although, you know, we can talk about whether those answers are satisfactory as time goes on. But I thought, like, I'm the guy who knows how to get us out of the hole that nobody even knows the hole is there. And I, uh, there was a little bit of arrogance in that, a little bit of pride. And mm. I really kind of got off on being the smart guy in the stake, or at least in the ward. I totally relate. Um, I think especially when you're the only one in the, really the only one in the ward who 
who has delved into this kind of stuff. And for the longest yeah. time, I told myself that um, I'm I'm not going to go there or be that person because I don't want to affect other people's testimonies. Yeah. So I will just quietly retain. But yeah, feel really good that I've got all of this. Uh, Mormons are, are great at super secret knowledge, right? And this was yeah. just another level of it. But one of the reasons we wanted, it was really important for us to, to ask you to come on the show is that the church in the UK, obviously around the world, the church in the UK and Ireland, I, I think there's some unique things happening. Almost an early warning system for you guys about, look, this is what we are seeing. This is going mm. to happen there. Um, it's a car crash at the moment. And so we're seeing prophets, apostles, the church's big hitters coming out in, in a bid to try and fix things. And they they really are taking a, a big swing and it's been consistent. It's been really interesting to watch. Most people um, aren't finding it super helpful. And so what we wanted to do is because we You said they all, are or they are not? Oh, they're not. They're no, not. No, yeah. They're but not. When there's problems and you try to finagle them to sound okay, the reality is that more people now know there's problems and it, it just spirals out. I don't think the church has a really good solution for it. Yeah. Well, Nemo the Mormon had had done some great content. We've got priesthood dispatches as well, had, had, had done some uh, released some great content where we were able to sit and discuss it. And for the most part, when the prophets and apostles are visiting the UK, they're talking about their holiday and mission experiences. And there was literally nothing, like nothing it, that we could work with. You said it was a complete car crash. It, most it, of it. was. Yeah. And I just think like we've noticed lately, now I guess they probably still use COVID as the excuse, but lately the amount of firesides that are going out to our youth, yeah. you know, it's constant. And it's because they're realising mm. they need to get them on site or they're going to lose them, and they know this. They'll never admit yeah. it, in my opinion. But I think that's why there's this drive on getting speaking to the youth. And the thing that gets me is you will have your people there, like myself and my youth, who sat there at state conference, Jennifer was, took notes, sucked everything in, didn't see the issues with what they were saying. You'll get your people like that. But I think now, from where a lot of youth and people stand, they're so open now to really seeing, right, come on, pal, like... You know, yeah. they'll see the issues there and they'll see what they're trying to do. And I think there's so much available now that, that they can't hide things from them anymore. Yeah. Well, that brings us to why we wanted you to, to come on the show really badly is because we are seeing this stuff. We're seeing all of our friends, all of our family leaving, um, our, our wards, I mean, decline. I don't know if you, you guys have are really aware of the awful figures um, that we have. And... So members are coming across material to augment their studies or things that will be more stimulating or just because it's part of the world that we live in. They're coming across your yeah. work, um, John DeLynn's work, um, you know, um, Natasha Helfer. People are talking about these things and our leadership are often responding with great concern. So what we wanted to do is to talk about, OK, who who is this guy, Bill Real? Do you do you need to be worried? If, is it is it? Should you be going there um, and talk a little bit about about you and, and what your aims and goals are? So, yeah, do sure. you want people to leave the church? I, I, I don't necessarily, yeah, I don't necessarily need people to leave the church. What I want is people to have enough information to make informed, consensual decisions about how they're going to live out their life. Yes. And 
when you look at like the gospel topic essays, you can tell that they are carefully worded. You can tell that there are problems they don't want to talk about. You can tell that they are giving the absolute extreme benefit of the doubt in places that almost violates rational thinking. And, and then you come to a podcast like Mormonism Live, where we're laying out all the sources, we're telling you the deep depth of the issue, and you essentially have to sit with like, who's being more honest with me? Who's being more transparent? Who's wanting me to have all the information? And I've got plenty of people that I know who are still doing Mormonism. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one example, I think Janice Bangler is still inside the church, right? And I don't need her to leave. I like her. She's my friend. Um, but I, but I, what I think happens is I think the church doesn't really want people to have information. It doesn't want to be transparent. It doesn't want to be honest. When the leaders are hiding multiple things over the course of decades, uh, things that are very crucial to each of us making informed decisions, and then tell us that they're being as honest as they know how to be, as transparent as they know how to be, they've not hidden anything. It's not, it's not honest to us. And we are, we're all picking up on it. Collectively, the internet's here. And we all realize like information is available if you know where to look. And most people don't know where to look. And we're just trying to give people a chance to have the information and to make educated, informed decisions, which if you understand consent, you really, even if you say yes to something, if, if somebody held back information that would have been uh, important to you making a different decision, then you really didn't give consent to begin with. And mm. I'm a big fan that let's give people information. If people decide to stay, more power to them. Um, But but let's all have the information, at least know where it's at and be encouraged to look at it. Yeah. Anyway, the entity. The last thing I'd say is the entity tries to tell you that it's the most honest about its story. And the reality is it's the least honest place to go to get the story. And, And people deserve information. Yeah. Yeah. Alana. No, I was just thinking, like, as you're talking there about information, you know, when I look to me growing up, you know, obviously, you know, I'm only 40, you know, but, you know, still quite a while ago and in the church, you know, I always remember it being drummed into me, like, don't read any anti-Mormon literature, you know, don't be looking out there um, for anything. And I remember a friend who had read it and the way she was treated from reading that was quite horrific. And so it always put me off looking into anything because I thought I was going to be this big bad person and I remember as I got to know Jane better and when she came back to church I remember talking to her about this whole but I can't be reading anti-Mormon literature and Jane said but there is no anti-Mormon literature it's out there because it's the truth you know and and that's when the penny dropped that I realized that they're just saying this because they know it's there and they don't want me to know of it because it is so messy but when I realized that it then made me want to look into it even more yeah. You know, so it's that yeah. pressure of not looking at what they call anti-Mormon literature, but it's not, I now realise that being older, that it's actually true church history, but they just don't want you to know it. Yeah, it. you, you know, what happens is anytime you look at any other, so it's, it's really hard. One of the things that happens in this space of trying to figure out if your system is true or not is that you come with an insider approach. You're, you're in the tribe, and so it's really hard to look at things with objectivity or to be unbiased, right? But if you look at other high-demand fundamentalist religions, such as Scientology, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, to some extent, they used to be very much so, but they've slowly moved away from that and watered themselves down to become more mainstream. 
the, the reality is all of those kinds of groups, they teach their members not to trust outside information. And they impose that the only place that the information is trustworthy is inside. And what the average member of the church doesn't realize is you only get about 1% of what's really happened. And that 1% has been embellished and whitewashed to the extent where you don't even know you're not getting a real story. Uh, even the even the updated uh, history in the telling of saints, uh, even in the Joseph Smith papers, stuff that uh, gets commented on, they're very selective about what gets shared and what doesn't. And uh, you can tell by saints, it's very much like the gospel topic essays in that it's it's approached giving the benefit of the doubt at every turn. Certain stories are still embellished. Some stories are completely left out. The reader is not really told what the logical questions are, what the real problems are that are going on. And so the average member has no way in which to dive into this material and come out the other side with an, an, um, an informed approach that would allow them to make an educated decision about how they want to navigate the church. Um, if you step outside the church and you watch Leah Remini's program on Scientology, if you go do some reading about Jehovah's Witnesses and listen to some of their members that have left and, and the criticisms they make, it is striking the similarities. And yet when you're inside a tribe, you automatically assume your tribe is better than the other unhealthy tribes that you obviously know are not true. And you're not really willing to look at your own tribe with the same kind of uh, lens, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I One of the, uh, and we'll get into the specifics of some of the shows and uh, things that you, that you've Please, been working yeah. on, but you know, um, one of the things that had, had really affected me. So Alana and I do this podcast, uh, you know, in the tension of a, an active member with someone who was sort of taking a step back and we've sort of been able to see, you know, speaking that tension, it's, it's been really interesting. One of the things that I try to do is give grace where it's possible. And so when uh, we've got, you know, our, our friend from Mormon Civil War, Peter Bleakley, um, Nemo the Mormon, who will say the apostles are lying. You, you know, yourself had uh, the, the, the... Liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> Elder Collins, pants are on fire. And it kind of, it gives me, you know, I feel like I'm going to have a nosebleed. Um, you know, <laughs> this is this is awkward and uncomfortable for me. But what is really fascinating is that you guys were able to show, um, and not just even in a one-off show, you know, over multiple shows, a pattern of behavior yeah. that is very, very difficult to ignore. Um, Elder, Elder Holland has lied on multiple occasions. President Nelson has lied on multiple occasions. The easy one to go to is the plane flight, right? Like it's a death flight, an engine explodes, a plane's on fire, it does a death spiral, lands in an empty field. And the reality of the story is much more mundane than what he told. And um, we don't hold our leaders accountable. Elder Holland tells the story where the kid goes on a mission to Idaho or something and meets his brother who he hasn't seen in two decades and gets past some... Uh, angry dogs, by the way, the dogs change every time. And one time it's the Rottweilers and another time it's Doberman Pincers. Um, the dogs change all the time. And so number one, they don't tell a true story. And number two, their stories don't even say, stay consistent. Um, there are complications with Elder uh, President Nelson telling his story three years after that plane flight versus what it was 10 years later. Um, they, they're not honest. 
they well, they don't really want Elder to Elder Oaks lied as well blatantly. What's that? El- Elder Oaks, didn't they? Like it was uh, Elder Oaks about the electroshock Blake therapy. Yeah. You. Yeah. He said it. He said it was gone by the time he got there, and the reality is, it started under his watch. Yeah, like it was him that it happened under. Um, and when you understand that BYU, by the way, their administration, the board of directors, is the church leadership. It's the first presidency yeah. and four apostles and three members of the seventy and three women from the the general uh, auxiliaries, and essentially anything BYU does is the church. And so for Oaks to be the president of BYU and say that was gone by the time he got there. And then when he gets caught and somebody holds him accountable, he doesn't want to respond because what can he say? He either has to say he forgot or he lied. Yeah. And I think this is why when you have this information and you, you know, I'm deciding what to do with it. It's, it's, um, so that when my friend goes to state conference and stands and votes opposed, um, I can hold her hand um, because I totally support what you're doing and you're right to do it. So, yeah, yeah well done, Alana. Uh, can I say one more thing, too? You mentioned Please. in the beginning, you mentioned in the beginning tone change. Like you go to my early work yes. and I'm very soft and faithful. People, I think people gravitated to me because it was such a friendly voice that was kind to walk them through the issues, right? Yes, and, and the reason that the reason the tone changed was because when I started off doing the podcast, I knew the church had a mess and I was, I was uh, compartmentalized. Some of my brain thought like, this doesn't add up. The church isn't true. And some of my brain said, no, the church, it has to add up. It has to be true. It's the kingdom of God on earth. Right. And, but I knew the church was good. And I knew that if we were patient and we nudged it along and kind of poked it a little bit to try to move it up that it would get to a place where it could be good to people because that's what it wanted to be was good. And somewhere along the way, I just realized that it it wasn't not only not true, it was also not good. You know, the November 2015 policy, the way it handled race and priesthood uh, and temple ban, and still to this day can't go like, hey, we messed up. It wants to leave it ambiguous to you whether there really was a ban by God, you know, yeah, we disavow the reasoning. That was us, shame on us. But the ban, in fact, the B1 conference that was uh, essentially celebrating that lifting of the ban, uh, Elder Oaks, if you go back and read his words in that talk, he is adamant that the ban itself is from God, even if we've disavowed the theories behind it. And so in my life, the church taught me gospel principles manual on repentance it told me that one, if I held back part of the truth, that was also lying. Two, it taught me that if I realized I wasn't being honest or if I made a mistake, my job was to go to whoever I offended or hurt and to say, I'm sorry, to apologize. And the church makes it clear that the principles it teaches with its words don't match its behaviors. And so my tone change essentially came from the fact that I just came to a place where I realized, like, oh, this is another high demand fundamentalist religion that isn't even good because we would, you know, as outsiders, we agree. Scientology is not good. Jehovah's witnesses are not good, but we have so much trouble as an insider to Mormonism, seeing it in the same way. One. And let me say one more thing. And then you can ask the next question, which is mm. we, we were talking about history being hidden versus programs like Mormonism live or Mormon discussion or radio free Mormon being very transparent and honest about the, the stories. Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner, 
we grow up in a church learning the story where the book of commandment papers are blown all over the field and her and her friend gather them all up and put them in their dress and, uh, and essentially salvage the book of commandments, which later becomes the doctrine and covenants. But let me ask you, where did the church tell you that Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner was one of the plural wives of your founder, Joseph Smith? They don't. And, and to tell one fact and not the other seems so blatant. Um, it's become so obvious. By the way, Joseph originally goes to Mary Elizabeth Rawlings Leitner when she's 12 years old and says, you will be a future wife of mine. I can't think of any universe where that feels like a healthy thing to do. Why, why do you tell a 12-year-old, even if that's true, it does no good. If God really did tell you, hey, that's going to be your wife someday, I see no reason to go to a 12-year-old and say it, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we're all on the same page. That doesn't feel mm -hmm. healthy, right? Okay. Yeah. All right. What if I need to get in that? Yeah. Uh, and this was, uh, this takes us back to the beginning of the triggers for Alana's journey. So that when Alana this week has been listening, <laughs> revisiting some of those older podcasts, it's, it's been quite, you know, like I, I had to call and say, look, you know, you, you maybe be kind of triggered here just to, and I was I'm right. I'm triggered right now too. Always. It's, it's all of us. <laughs> well, the, I, I but, think if I had listened to Bill without like knowing any of his recent stuff, like I would have hated on him. Like I think I would have, but because I know Bill and I see you every week, I know the person you are and I love you. Yeah. And so, yeah. Although I was raging at you, like I could see, I can see the reasons. You know, and I think it can be so triggering because it it was us. It was you, you know. The other thing is, I I recognise that tone. That's me. That's th those aims that you had when you were talking about your yeah. podcast and what you were intending to do. Yeah, I I hear that, and that is uncomfortable. Um, yeah. So yeah. It was November 2015, by the way, was the moment that oh, I went really? from yes, thinking yes. it was good to knowing it wasn't good. That, right. And again, I only speak for myself. You guys can feel whatever you feel, but that's my my point of view is that two, no, November 2015 was the moment I had a light bulb moment and said, oh, it can't even be good. <laughs> so as is November 2015, how you got from ultimately from Bishop Bill Real to Bill Real right now. What, what's this? That's the, that's their most asked question for this episode yeah. has been, how did that happen? It was death by a thousand cuts. I started off knowing the church was true and knowing that if I kept reading, I could demonstrate it, that I was smart enough to figure out answers that would work for the problems. And as I kept thinking and wrestling and studying, what I discovered were more and more problems and a, a stronger realization. So by the way, it's like, it's not like 10 problems, right? It's like a thousand problems. And that might even be way underestimating it. So it's not only that there are so many problems, but when you dive into the solutions for those problems, you begin to recognize they're irrational. Um, let me explain this. So to the listeners, uh, viewers that are watching, rational thinking works this way. We almost never in our lives know with absolute certainty how something happened. A rational thinker always picks the conclusion that requires the least amount of conjecture and allowances. There's a noise on my roof in the woods. It could be a squirrel, could be a raccoon, could be a pine cone falling off a tree, or it could be an alien, right? And if I jump to it's an alien, I'm needing more allowances and conjecture 
to make that solution work. And what happens in the church is it's aliens everywhere as the explanation. Um, you know, Joseph is marrying young women and some of the language seems very high pressure and it seems to involve uh, implications of sex when you look at the um, Temple Lot case, for instance. But apologists come in and go like, well, there weren't any children. Maybe, you know, we don't have any proof. Like it's always maybe what if possibly could have been. At the end of the day, if you're going to be a rational thinker, you have to pick the thing that's the most reasonable. You have to pick the thing that requires the least amount of conjecture to come to that conclusion. And sometimes the most rational conclusion does require some conjecture. But if your solution to a thousand problems is always the less rational way to do it, then you're being irrational. And often when we're insiders to a system that we want to be true, we often give the benefit of the doubt over the most rational conclusion on any given issue. And then when we talk about doing it a thousand times on a thousand issues, Occam's razor says that it is statistically not, not improbable, it's statistically impossible. And yet the apologists come in and say, but no, 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 it may be like, what if? And that's just not real. So anyway, I, I don't know. What was the original question? I'm a rambler, by the way. No, it's, exactly. You're our people. Um, so when you are um, in that space of making it work, you mentioned in your earlier sort of the, the kind of mm -hmm. middle transition podcast where you start to talk about how you feel when you're at church and you mention anxiety. You, you clearly mm. have church anxiety. I was shaking. Um, could, could you talk about that? Because that that is exactly what um, what what we what we feel. That's when our friends stop going to church, um, when they've stopped going because of COVID. That is what they're experiencing. And I really wish our local country leaders would be listening to this. This is what members are experiencing. I wanted to make it better. I wanted to stay. I wanted to be Mormon more than anyone. I was both feet in. I mean, here I am. I joined the church at 17. I'm a bishop by 29. I am, I'm doing all the right things. I'm the, I'm the guy who shows up at the move. I'm the guy who shows up when there's a time to clean the chapel. Uh, I'm the guy who's doing those things. And I wanted to make it better. And as I, as I went into my wards on Sunday and they would say things like Thomas Marsh leftover milk and strippings, I would raise my hand and go, guys, that's really a, um, a not realistic way to approach the problem, even though it's in your manual, that's not how it happened. Right. Oh, and what the I same would have, thing. I did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what I would have is that the, the teachers in that class and the counsel from leaders in various places to those members is meant at every turn to silence anybody who raises a hand and wants to correct the record. Right. And so I had Sunday school teachers who were in front of everybody going, Hey, Bill, we're not going to let you talk today. And I'd be like, Whoa, like my point of view isn't allowed in this room. Like that doesn't make any sense. Um, I had leaders come and sit down with me in my home and say, Bill, you have to stop saying things. You have to stop sharing this stuff. Um, even though I'm the one telling the truth, I'm the one who's opening up the historical record and saying like, Hey, this is not how it happened. And when your voice is silenced over and over and over again, eventually 
your inability to be your authentic self causes stress on your body. And so um, I would get anxiety because, again, I am a justice warrior. I'm an eight on the Enneagram, if you know what that is. Um, I don't let people bully other people. I'm kind of sensitive myself. If you want to pick on me, I get hurt a little bit. But if you do things that hurt other people, I'm going to stand between you and them. And in over and over again, having my voice silenced, it it did. It got to the point where I would leave church. Like I used to think, I told my friend once, I, he, I said, um, Saturdays are like Christmas Eve for me. Mm. And my friend said, you need better Christmases. <laughs> so um, because Saturday getting ready for church was amazing. I loved, I loved the excitement in my head about like tomorrow's church. Tomorrow I get to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow I get to, 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 to be part of this ward family. I get to serve these people. And it got to the point where in, on Saturday I was getting excited, but on Sunday I would come home shaking and I would have all this anxiety and I'd have a headache. And uh, finally it's like, Hey Bill, like my body's going like, Hey Bill, this isn't as fun as you think it is. And I finally just had enough and I, I just couldn't go anymore. It, it was too painful to be there where everybody preferred their comfortable lies over reality. Your body just shuts you down at some point. Sounds um, familiar, Jane, right? Alana, church anxiety? <laughs> it was really bad for me, like pre-COVID. And I didn't even know half the stuff that I know now about the church. But I just remember one day something just didn't feel right. I just thought I this isn't fun for me anymore. Like I was in a calling in primary at the time and Jane will tell you, like I was even struck out. It was only, I say only, it was a music director with the kids and I, I loved the calling. I loved the kids. But even trying to go to be able to do that was becoming impossible. Like I was getting so anxious. I was getting like, maybe wasn't outwardly shaking, but that rattling feeling you get inwardly where you're just, I'm like, I can't do this. Like I, I cried at times. I'm just like, I, I actually had to end up, you know, being released from that call because I couldn't do it. And I don't think I fully understood at the time what was causing it, but I just yeah. knew that I wasn't happy. I, I guess it's that thing they say where you're, what, what is it they call it again? Is it physically and mentally out kind of thing? Yeah, Pimo physically and mentally out. Like that that was me for so long pre-COVID. And then COVID then made me realise, you know, again, you've got this thing where you're taught in the church growing up um, that you'll never be happy outside the church, that no one can be happy without the church. And so... Yeah. But I realised through COVID, I was happier. I didn't have the anxiety that I had. Now, I do suffer mental health, but that's a whole different thing. I didn't have the anxiety. I wasn't stressing about going to church. I wasn't miserable hearing some of the stuff they were saying that was upsetting my family members. Um, and, and I just thought, I don't need this anymore. I don't need it in my life. I can be happy yeah. without it. And by I, the way, um, you're making them uncomfortable too. And yes. I came to a realization, at least in my ward, they didn't, they didn't want me there. They wouldn't say that directly, but everybody is communicating through one way or another that Bill, we don't want you here. You make us yeah. too uncomfortable. Um, you're it's challenging. Okay our to feel uncomfortable though. Yeah. Yeah. They're feeling uncomfortable too. And, and once I realized you don't want me here and I'm not enjoying this anymore, there was no reason to go. I, I mean, I'm active and when I go to church, I have to sleep for the rest of the day as soon as yeah. I'm home. Mm. It's, it's just, it's it's a lot. Um, and I think when church doesn't feel like a safe place, but you're t overriding your, um, yeah, your, your body just takes control. Um, yeah. You also talk about meeting with your state president and 
that you found it draining. Could you speak to that a little bit? And with, then we're going to have a follow-up question. Yeah. So I met with, I moved to Southern Utah, I think in 2015, uh, maybe early in the year. And um, just as I was leaving Ohio, my stake president in Ohio was called to be a Area 70. And I, I don't think that was a coincidence, by the way. Maybe it was, but I don't think it was. Yeah. But what the church didn't know was that I was in the process of taking another job in Southern Utah. So I quickly escaped, right? <laughs> I get out to Southern Utah. I start going to my ward out there in one town. We ended up three years later buying a house in another town. But the first three years, immediately my stake president there reaches out and says, Bill, the, the church wants me to talk to you. By the way, I recorded all those conversations. I've never released them, but there's tons of good gems in there. Um, I met with him for three years. And every time I meet with him, he's trying to figure out whether I still believe, whether I'm still faithful. And I know how to be honest, at least as honest as I know how to be. <laughs> I know how to be honest and transparent to the degree that I'm not lying, but I'm also not telling them um, how messy this all is. I'm leaving it kind of soft, right? And so I got to stay in for those three years. Then we bought a house in another town, and, and then that stake president starts meeting with me. And what becomes crystal clear is that when I pose my questions, like here's the problems, these are the things that don't add up, these are only the major 10, there's a thousand more behind it, um, essentially they would acknowledge like we don't have good answers. There's no good answers. And it eventually got to the point with my second stake president here in Utah where um, – I'm pointing out, I did the Elder Holland liar, liar, pants on fire. And my stake president's in my living room with my wife and two of my friends, by the way, who are there also. And my stake president, I said, did, do you think Elder Holland lied? And my stake president goes, it looked like he did. It looks like he did. And I said, then what's the problem? He goes, you just can't say that. I said, oh, so I can be honest and he can lie. And I'm the guy who gets punished when I shine a light on it. And he's the guy who gets to hide and be distant from the criticism. And uh, I said, okay, I said, here's my, and I think I had like 13 questions. And I said, here's my 13 questions. If these could be resolved, this would solve everything for me. I'll, I'll go back to church full faith. And he goes, I think we can get answers to these. And I said, oh, okay, I'm excited. This will be great. I already knew what was going to happen, right? So he takes my 13 questions, goes off with his own mind, thinking he's going to have these men answer these questions. He comes back to me. Uh, I think two weeks later, nothing happened. So I think I reached out and said, hey, anything on those questions? He goes, well, let me meet with you again. So he uh, meets with me again. And he essentially says like, no, they're not going to answer those. And I said, you, you see, right? There's not good answers to these questions. And he's just, he's a company man. He's loyal. And it becomes crystal clear that it doesn't matter what leaders say or do. It doesn't matter what, what these guys lie about, what they hide from, what questions they refuse to answer, right? These are the questions that we'll avoid. It, it doesn't matter. Um, it is the member, local member of the ward or stake who raises those questions, who is the problem. And we don't get to say the fact that those questions are unanswerable from a faithful position. They are answerable, by the way. They're just not answerable from a faithful position. And if those questions aren't answerable from a faithful position, then maybe the church isn't what it claims to be. Yeah. Amen. So the follow-up we wanted to ask, um, Alana, do you want to take this? Uh, you're going to be meeting That's with That's the one your... we talked about earlier. Yeah. 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 So obviously for most of the listeners, I'll just 
give a brief for anyone who doesn't. I voted opposed a few weeks ago at the state conference. Um, my state president secretary reached out to me a couple of weeks ago to ask for a meeting. I then reached out back saying I would prefer if it wasn't the state centre, just due to travel, childcare, etc. Um, so I've had an email back just last night, was it? Or was it this morning? I can't even remember. Um, to arrange to meet in my ward building. Um, so I guess, Phil, I just want to ask from your perspective. Obviously, I know that every state president's different. Um, I understand that. But what can I kind of expect from this? And like, what advice would you give me to how to handle myself? Yeah. You know, because I... I can be calm in these situations, but it just takes for you to say maybe the wrong thing or something that crosses a line. And I don't think he's this type of person that will, but in my own mind, like I've already have an anxiety about me flying off the handle or, you know, like losing yeah. losing it or something. So just what advice would you give to someone who's going to speak to the state president for the first time after voting a post mm -hmm. or having concerns? What do you want the outcome to be? Mm. Oh. I didn't know you were going to flip it back on me. <laughs> um, well, I guess the main thing for me is I just want to be heard, first mm. and foremost. Um, I don't feel I've ever been heard or listened to. Um, my main reasons for voting opposed were in regards to LGBTQ issues because they directly affect my family, not only for my family, but for other people who I know who it affects. Um, I guess I've not really majorly thought about it that way um well you've thought about it and that you were sort of I, I had pointed out that you don't have to meet with your state president yeah and yeah. you felt like if you do you want to yeah well well yeah. june had said you know you can decline and i said but that would just be a whole waste of an opposing vote what's the point of me voting opposed if i don't voice my concerns yeah. i mean i guess there is so many things that i could say you know all my years been told that Joseph Smith and polygamy, you know, it was just a thing of the times. I wasn't told the truth about him marrying young girls and being a paedophile. You know, um, I've got so many concerns, but I don't want to go in and just be like, boom, boom, boom. But, you know, because I don't think you get anywhere by doing that. So yeah. I feel like if I tackle just a few of the main things that concern me, which is LGBTQ issues, the fact that we're lied to. Um, and just the way, I think my third thing now would be the way that people who leave the church are treated and spoken about. Yeah. Um, I just feel it's not a good idea to go in and bombard them with like 25 things, <laughs> you know, it doesn't really get you anywhere, does it? You just go around in circles. Yeah. So generally, those men are going to be good men. I assume, I'm going to assume your oh, stake president's so good. a good man. I don't know him that well, but I've heard good things about him. Yeah. He's really good, yeah. Good. There are bad ones too. I had a member of a stake presidency who was deeply unhealthy from a psychology standpoint, like a lot of shadows, a lot of manipulation, a lot of gaslighting. Um, I've run into those too. But yeah. for the most part, the leaders I've been around have been fantastic human beings, but they're loyal. They're called to that position and they feel a lot of pressure from those above them to be company men, to do what the leader, you know, what the top leaders want them to do. And, and so when you go in, one is I'm going to guess they're nice, but yeah. I'm also going to guess that you're going to incur more trauma by going. Um, yeah. But that's the decision we make, right? When we yeah. want to be yeah. a voice for the problems. Um, my two cents is to raise concerns that would be more difficult to argue with. So for instance, if you're going to bring up the LGBT issue, because the church still holds the position that being 
in homosexual intimate acts is wrong, a, a stake president's going to have a really easy time dismissing that. Yeah. Right. He may say like, oh, you know, personally, maybe someday we get there and I'd be okay if we do, but he's not going to be like, yeah, they're wrong. So by bringing up the LGBT issue, which I wouldn't avoid bringing up, you could bring it up. But if you're going to say like, here, let me give you my, my major three problems. What I would do is I would raise things that can't be questioned. I would, I would talk about the Lucy Walker story and talk about how Joseph Smith pressured this 16 year old girl with time limits of 24 hours uh, penalties that the gates of heaven would be closed against her. You could take in the actual writings of her from her journal and show that she was coerced. Um, you know, you could talk about race and priesthood and you could use that as a, a jumping off point from the LGBT issue. And you could discuss how, how can prophets, these are the men that I trust to talk to God. The reason we have them is so that I don't get confused inside about my own thoughts and I can have this voice that can go like, hey, here's how it works. And to know that those guys got it right or got it wrong for over a hundred and something years tells you that maybe prophets aren't very good at discerning the mind and will of God. Um, if you can show that they were dishonest, again, my stake president didn't budge. He didn't do things in my favor, but he absolutely acknowledged that it looks like Elder Holland's a liar. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can show that those guys lied, all you're not really going to get what you want, which is for someone oh, to go like, Hey, you're right. Yeah. You know yeah. what you're going to, at best, what you're going to get is somebody who tries to kick the can down the street because I'm sure on some level too, he knows that you do this podcast. Yeah. Um, somebody's telling him, right. I mean, the, the, the strengthening church members committee is listening right now. Yeah. They're taking Our notes. Bishop is away. Our bishop's spoken with James. So yeah. he's over here. So the state president will know. Sure. Yeah. So the, the best you're going to get is a good human being who goes like, ah, eh, you know, we need faith. Yeah. It looks a little complicated, but let's just trust in the leaders. And he just wants to meet with you every once in a while and kind of revisit it. But as long as you're soft and kind and you don't say anything too crazy on this podcast, you get to kind of stay on the rolls. Um, that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is it's something much more traumatic than that. Um, it's never going to go your way. Even yeah. when it does take John Dillon, for instance, his first stake president essentially sided with him. And do you know what happened to that stake president? He got released At least and a new stake president got called. And that new stake president got called with the very uh, direction that the reason we're calling you is to get rid of John Dillon. So um, these, these things play out and they end up being more trauma for all of us. But also there's value in constantly raising a voice to the problems that are around us. Yeah. See, yeah. I, I think I believe it. Well, I want to believe that I think eventually a lot more people are going to start using their voices. I, I, I would like to think that people will just say enough is enough, you know, that we can't just say so. Well, that, that's what I hope anyway. I hope that more people use their voice. And, and you know, I someone had said to me, you know, like, you know, is it going to make any difference? What difference is your vote in a post going to make? But I know it's not going to make a huge difference in the sense of I'm one person, like with the church, I mean, like with them directly. But as I said, and when Jane interviewed me, you know, afterwards, like I said, but it's it's modelling that for other people to say that, hey, it is okay to oppose. Now, I could have opposed based on LGBTQ issues alone without, like previously, without knowing all the history because I, for years, that was the one thing that concerned me 
in the church, but yeah. I shelved it. Um, but I think it's okay to vote oppose against one thing. It doesn't mean you want to leave the church. It doesn't mean you yes. have to walk away. You can you can vote opposed without doing all of that. You I should be that. allowed to vote opposed in a church that tells you you can vote opposed. Why yeah. take a vote at all if people can't vote opposed? And and the, you get the original system was set up so that problems or or people who are deeply unhealthy that had fooled somebody above them and got called that, that there was a mechanism in place to be able to squash that thing from continuing. But today the system doesn't really value that the vote really isn't real unless 70% of people stood up in, in general conference in that, in that building and raised their hands so that it could be seen by the camera. 10 people raising their hand means nothing. Yep. It, it ha it's useless other than it gives you a chance to stand up for your convictions, which I think is important as well. Yeah. In the show notes, we'll share the link that uh, Nemo the Mormon has a, a, a template letter that you can send if you want to know more about how you can use your voice and uh, vote in a post. Um, but I'll try to find those 13 questions, by the way. And if I find them, I'll yeah. send them to you. And if you yeah, use any of those in your meeting, you can. Please, please do. That would be great. Yeah. And we've got oh, requests. You'll need to find them quick. I'll be on Sunday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we've got requests that you do a podcast on your yeah, questions. Okay. So, they're good um, ones. I don't think yeah. there's good. I picked, I picked 13 questions that nobody could answer. And they're <laughs> deeply pointing to whether the church is what it claims to be or not. Excellent. Excellent. When you talk about... Um, you, you use the word trauma quite a lot. And at the time of your excommunication, when that was first um, coming up, you spoke about it being barbaric and traumatic. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I had a lot of feedback going into it that it was going to be barbaric and traumatic. And I think for lots of people, it was. Sam Young called me about a week before and he said, Bill, you don't even know yet. Like when you experience this, there's going to be a lot of hurt and pain that you don't even know was coming by going through it. So I, I first want to absolutely validate that for some people, the disciplinary court and all that comes with that is, uh, is trauma being imposed on you. For me, it wasn't. When I went that night, I was expecting it to be. Um, it just wasn't. There was a lot of value in being able to say my piece and coming away from that having had the stake president go build doesn't have anything wrong with his integrity. He, he didn't do some sin to get himself into this spot. He's just not allowed to say the things he said. And I even asked in the, in the court, I said, did elder Holland lie? And he goes in the court, he said, it doesn't matter. You can't say that. And so I felt like vindicated. I felt like, I felt like I was justified. Um, and I walked out of there. Uh, you know, we had a recording of it. By the way, it wasn't my recorder. I didn't push record. Um, I didn't place it on my body. It, it, that's not what happened. But it was recorded. And uh, what came from that recording is obvious that there's a mess and nobody has good answers to it. And um, for me, it was probably the most peaceful church-related moment I had had in two years. Um, because I got to say my piece. The whole world got to hear me say my piece. And... Um, I was finally done. Like I hadn't been going to church for about a year and uh, to be able to come away from that, it was essentially closure for me. I got to finally go like, okay, I did everything I could from the inside to make a difference. And uh, now you get Bill real from the outside who doesn't have to couch his words. Yep. I, 
dislike the question I'm about to ask, but I hope you'll understand why I ask it. Ask should, anything, by the way. I'm an open book. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> should you have been excommunicated? Um, no. Yes. Well, yes and no. So <laughs> no, in that no one should be penalized for being honest and transparent about another thing that is being dishonest and not transparent, right? Nobody should be yeah. punished. But I would also say yes, that a high demand fundamentalist religion has its boundaries and it deems who are threats to those boundaries, who are threats to the believers. And it has a right to remove me from its organization just as much as Kiwanis or Rotary or, uh, you know, the, the Masons or whoever, whatever other organization doesn't agree with something somebody's doing inside and that person keeps persisting, they have a right to remove that person from their membership. Yeah, if I'm absolutely. at a park, oh, go ahead. But I, I just, that really irritates me. Like, I totally get what you're saying. Like, it's their organization. Yeah, they have the right. But they're telling us and teaching us. I grew up my whole life when we're taught about being honest. You know, we're asked about it. Are you honest in all your dealings? And, you know, yep, yep, yep. And you're being excommunicated for doing just that very thing. It's, it, that's barbaric in my mind. Because yeah. I'm like, you guys are lying. There is evidence that you're lying. You're not being honest. But that's okay for you because you're a top leader of the church. But here's wee Bill Bishop, oh, Bishop Bill Real down here. But he's speaking the truth. But because it doesn't fit in with what we want the members to know, let's just get rid of him. It's so it's wrong on so many levels, and it makes me like Jane will tell you, it makes me so so angry. Like yeah, I think it was Terrell no, Givens. You don't have that right. You don't yeah. have that right. Terrell Givens or Marlon Jensen, it might have been the two of them together. They said, you know, the church is losing its best and brightest. It's not just losing its brightest, the smart people, right? Not the lazy learners, but the people who are delving into the history, wrestling with what's going on there, not finding the answers to be reconcilable and losing their faith, but they're also losing their best. They're losing mm. the people who were all in, the people who really valued being honest and transparent, the people who really wanted to make a difference, the people who really wanted to make it better. Yes. Um, notice, notice, by the way, <clears throat> the church doesn't give apologies, right? Never. But that's not, that's not really true. It's really the top 15 don't give apologies. Notice Brad Wilcox can give yeah. an apology. He modeled it very well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's the best apology in the world. But what I'm saying is that the top leadership of the church has no problem with anybody under them screwing up and apologizing. What they have a problem with is their apologizing. Um, this is a church that's ran by people who, who uh, hide themselves from accountability. These are people that when they are questioned, when Elder Holland, when, when he told that story about the kid going on the mission and the story right away, Radio Free Mormon, myself and others in our community said, that story is not true. There are so many places that are irrational and unreasonable that that story is not true. When Elder Holland came out and said, uh, we ended up pulling the story and Deseret News went to him and said, why is this story being pulled? Um, his answer was because the family asked me to. And they said, they said some of the facts aren't true. That's not how you, again, I, I'm adding my own conjecture here, but that's not how it happened. How it happened was he knew he was getting caught red handed, telling a story that wasn't true, that him and other general authorities had told in a multitude of ways with, with conflicting facts over about a decade. That story was a faith promoting story that leadership of the church had created somehow. And the story wasn't true. And elder Holland who is uh, a prophet, seer, and revelator, 
doesn't have the ability inside himself to know when a story is absolutely absurd. His spirit of discernment, uh, do you guys allow swearing on your podcast? Um, well, we've had priesthood dispatches on, so yeah. Okay, well, I, all right, I'll, I'll avoid it. I can see your discomfort. I'll avoid it. Jane's it, probably more uncomfortable with it than yeah, I am, yeah. but I respect that. I There's nothing that. wrong with a good swear word, word once in a while. Or a cup You're of coffee. Real. Of course you can swear. Um, what you realize is that these men who are supposed to have the spirit of discernment better than the apostate Bill Real seem <laughs> inadequate at knowing which stories are reasonable and which stories are absurd. Um, any, anyway, I, I'm, I'm rambling now and I forget again the original question. Well, I, I, so I, I, been excommunicated, wasn't it? I need What's to that? jump in. Yeah, the question was, should you have been excommunicated? But while while yes you're no. taking a while you're taking a drink for our audience, um, sometimes we need to jump in and do a quick Scottish translation, just in case it sounds like we're being really insulting or you know you have no idea what we're talking about. But the fact oh, what did that I say? <laughs> so it's a term of endearment in I Scotland just go off when you have so when you when there is a gentleman um we would call them you know for example big jamie and then when he has a son it's wee jamie um so it's a term of endearment if we call someone you know like we would say we love our wee bishop um and so yeah you alana oh, calls i said wee bill real wee, wee bishop, wee bishop bill. Bill real. it's just possibly my favorite moment in our entire podcasting life wee bishop bill that's beautiful. I, I guess um, that was just a comparison <laughs> from being you're not the top dog up there like them, you know. It yeah. just me it's it means that you're one of Alana's people and um yeah it's it's I've got so your sweet. back, Bill. I've got your back. <laughs> so yeah, would you if it were to have happened today, would you have been excommunicated? At this point, are do you, are you too high profile now? Would there you know, how would that go? Um, so, uh, let's see how I want to say this. Um, when the elder hall and liar, liar pants on fire episode, I had recorded that months and months before I had published it. I knew, I knew when I recorded it, this will be the one, this is the thing you can't say. You can, you can talk about Jesus being mythical. You can talk about the book of Mormon being non-historical. You can talk about the issues and you can say like, hey, this thing with Lucy Walker, or this thing with the book of Abraham doesn't add up. What you can't say is those top 15 men are part of the problem. And I knew when I recorded it that that would happen. So when I got to the point where like, hey, I'm not going anymore. I'm not going to go anymore. I really do want to start moving into being more direct, more uh, brash maybe about the issues. And so when I released that episode, it was two weeks later to knock at my door and two guys in suits delivered an envelope saying, uh, you've got a disciplinary court essentially. And I don't think any time I would have done that unless I was like uh, Sterling McMurrin or Eugene England or one of those guys where somebody like David O. McKay was going to come and fight on your behalf, right? Unless I was in that moment and being one of those guys, and I don't think I worded things as softly as those guys did. I think no matter what age I grew up in, whatever year it was, that excommunication was going to happen. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Um, okay, so that's kind of taking us to where we're at now. Um, 
did you imagine that you would still be podcasting after you've been excommunicated all of that trauma that you've experienced did you imagine that you would still be in this space all all this time later yeah so 2012 i started podcasting i think it was september of 2012 2014 we turned it into a nonprofit but i was still only one podcast by 2016 i think we're bringing in about $20,000 a year <clears throat> But I'm spending hundreds and hundreds of hours. I mean, the the amount of you know money that's coming in versus the time and energy spent is such a discrepancy. So in about 2015, 2016, somewhere in there, I just got burned out. I, I didn't want to talk about Mormonism anymore. If you go to my episode archive and you go back to those that year, you'll see that maybe like once every two or three months was I putting something out. I knew I was burned out. I didn't think I could do it anymore because it, I wanted to move on. But then I thought, you know, this thing's bringing in 20,000, then it's 25,000, then it's 30,000. I said, you know, I've got, a, I've got a thing here that's growing. It's helpful to people. So I said, if I'm burned out, what's the next best thing? And I looked over at John DeLynn and I say, he's, you know, he's got a thoughtful faith. He's got Mormon matters. Uh, he's got his Mormon stories and he's got some other ones too that are, that are plugging along. And I thought, what if I invited other people? What if I gave chances to other people to be part of this? And so I uh, very quickly um, met Radio Free Mormon just by chance. I ended up uh, having a conversation with him. And I just thought, man, this guy's brilliant. I wonder if he could podcast. And I said, have you ever thought about podcasting? And he goes, uh, yeah, yeah, but I don't know how to do it. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll just show you. So we spent a couple of weeks uh, on multiple phone calls in front of computers. And I just showed him the ropes. I showed him how to do everything. And next thing you know, about a week later, he produces episode one and I listened to it. And I thought, damn, that guy's good. That guy's really good at expounding on Mormonism. And I think we got to like episode seven or so, and it was uh, wrong roads, which is my all time favorite episode of his. My wife and I have listened to it. I think three or four times at this point, I've got a couple of my kids have listened to it and it's just, it's hilarious and it's brilliant. So he comes on, Alan and Katie Mount come on, Marriage on a Tightrope. And we had some other ones too, Mormon History Podcast. Uh, there were a few others. But, you know, people drift in and out. Podcasting's hard, right? Doing doing video streaming and, and talking about these things. It's it's a lot of energy, right? And you're it's not just the time recording. It's editing. It's publicizing it. It's getting the guest. It's the time spent is crazy and people don't even have a clue how much it is. Um. By getting other people to podcast under the umbrella of Mormon Discussion Incorporated, we essentially allowed me to step back whenever I needed to. I could just take a break and other voices were continuing to publish material. And uh, that re-energized me. And then even recently, and I really feel good about it today. Like I know I wouldn't have thought in 2012 that I would be what I'm doing today. I, I wouldn't have expected that. I would have thought, yeah, I'll talk about what I want to talk about. And when I'm done talking about it, I'll be done. <laughs> what I didn't expect was that Mormonism, the hole in the rabbit hole in Mormonism goes forever. You never run out of material. You never run out of material. And even when you think you're going to run out of material, the church just keeps doing stupid stuff, right? It just keeps saying things and doing things and, and involving itself in places it shouldn't and handling things in ways that it shouldn't like Brad Wilcox, where you get to go like, oh, there's new material. Thank you. About once a week, if you go on the internet and type in the word Mormon, hit enter, and then just search for news, there's almost weekly something that you could talk about, right? And then just recently, you know, um, 
our board of directors was mostly men. Our um, podcast umbrella was mostly male podcasters with the exception of Katie Mount as one half of Marriage on a Tightrope. And so we recently reached out and said, hey, are there any female voices out there that would like to have a chance at podcasting? Anybody interested? And I had about 12 women reach out uh, who wanted to get involved in podcasting, uh, at least on the front end of that conversation. And then today, I think we, we've got five of them uh, that we've brought in in one way or another. Brittany Hartley, who's joined with me doing the Almost Awakened podcast, which I think we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, there is uh, several others. I was going to, I pulled it up here. So I've got currently under our lineup is um, the original podcast, Mormon Discussion, which I only do something every once in a while. Radio Free Mormon, who I think is brilliant. Marriage on a Tightrope. Alan and Katie do more good in oh, this yeah. space. And, and I'll tell you, they don't bring in much. If anybody wants to, you said something at the beginning about sending money to Mormon discussions. If you're going to do that, send it to Alan and Katie. Um, Alan and Katie do, I think, the greatest work in our umbrella. And the money that comes into them is slim pickings. Uh, Mormon discussion and Radio Free Mormon bring in way far more than they do. Um, so and I'd really like to see. It's a hugely signposted um podcast when any uh when anyone is talking about tension or conflict within relationships and the church that's the one that people are signposting them to yeah. so uh, yeah just to underline that please support that yeah yeah i mean um the good that they do helping relation i would think if my marriage was softened that tension and my marriage was able to make it because they helped both sides kind of work together you would think that that would be the place that people would be dropping decent amounts of cash. And, and it's not, I think uh, Alan and Katie brought in maybe about $9,000 uh, last year. It's, it's not much yeah. um, for the work and time and energy that they put in. Um, so again, send money that way. Uh, Mormonism live, which another thing I, again, I got burned out kind of again uh, about a year and a half ago. And I reached out to RFM and I said, what if we did a live show? And, you know, you got to prepare one week and I prepared the next and it would give me a chance to have somebody with me so that I wouldn't be putting all this time and energy into it. And he agreed. And I think the show is fantastic. Uh, the Backyard Professor with Carrie Shirts, Rami Umpton oh. Ruminations with Scott Geyer. Um, Both are awesome. We, so yeah. shout out to the Backyard Professor is so funny and uh, insightful. Um uh, who who was after Rami Umptum Ruminations? Rami Umptum Ruminations with Scott Dyer. That's All a really good one, yeah. And then the one I'm really excited about, Almost Awakened, I'm excited about it because it gives me a chance to talk about the things that I'm learning today that have nothing to do with Mormonism. Just yesterday, uh, Britt and I recorded an episode on the hero's journey. And um, we, we didn't mention Mormonism, I think, one time. Uh, it was just a fun conversation. And then the new ones, Where Will You Go? It's hosted by a woman named Marty. Uh, Dissident Daughters is hosted by uh, Emily Robinette. Uh, she Became Visible, which just put out its trailer, is hosted we, by Renee Steelman. We interviewed Renee uh, two weeks ago. She's yeah. incredible. I'm so looking forward to seeing what she comes up with. Yeah, she's excited. We're excited. These new podcasts, like I, I never would have imagined I got to the point where I think last year we brought in uh, $240-something thousand dollars. And that has allowed us to pay our overhead, to pay RFM for his time and energy, to pay marriage on a tightrope, a, you know, a significant portion of what they bring in. And each of these new podcasters, just like the other guys, the, the first year they don't make anything. 
because there's so much cost that goes into hosting their site, giving them an immediate audience, um, you know, helping them with whatever it is that we need to do to get them up and going. Uh, but after the first year, they make a significant portion of what comes into their podcast. And uh, if you ask Radio Free Mormon, the potential there is incredible. Um, so I'm excited to see what these women do on these new podcasts. I'm excited to see what Carrie Schertz and Scott Dyer do with theirs uh, because they're building an audience. I mean, when we release their stuff on YouTube, um, they're immediately getting hundreds and hundreds of, of listens and views and our channel's growing and the work's going forward. And I'm now just January 1st, I went down to part-time. I work two to three days a week at my, at my, at the pawn shop, which is a fun job, by the way. Uh, someday, if you ever want to come back on and just talk about pawn shops, that's a, <laughs> oh, that's a cool conversation. And uh, we're to the point now where I'm, I'm home and I'm running this nonprofit as the executive director. Um, we now have a board that has, I think, an equal number of men and women on it. And uh, we are just moving full steam ahead. We, our goal is to provide information and provide support to people, mostly through audio, but we do, um, we do par essentially parties, but you know, meetups here at my home or other places in the community and invite people to, to just show up and have a good time and have support. And we travel around sometimes. I went to Thrive in Salt Lake City uh, a few months ago and, and Thrive in Vegas, I think a month ago. And spoke at both of those. And um, I just, this is, this is a fun place to be. It really is where people are having a hard time learning that their reality isn't real and being one of the soft spaces that help people to figure that out. Yeah. And you have lots of active church members in your audience still. I think so. I think, I think people are drawn to rational thinking. I think people are drawn to honesty. And I think there's a lot of people out there who are trying to figure out how this all goes back together. And um, maybe it, maybe it doesn't. I, I think what is um, it's intellectually stimulating and uh, you know, it, the church has been teaching forever. that truth is truth, wherever it comes from, that's the fascinating stuff. Um, and it's always, I was going to say it's always respectful, you know, it's no one's, it's, it's not sort of a, a the ex-Mormon space can be very um, angry, understandably, and this isn't that, what you've created is, um, it, it's fun and it's direct and uh, yeah, it's, it's great to see, um, you know, in the, in the chat on a Wednesday night, there's there's lots of different points of view coming across. Yeah. It's, it's a really good family, I think, that you've created in, in the, the, the chat. It's, it's, a good, it's a good group. Um, yeah. Coming back to what's happening in the UK. So the, somehow the stars just aligned and all of the British podcasters, more or less, I think, um, who are in this space right now, we, we're all just really, really good friends and everyone's doing their thing and, you know, we, we'll we'll talk all the time. But one of my concerns has been burnout. Um, you know, initially when Mormon civil wars peaked, we, we, when he was excommunicated as well as working on all of this content, you know, we, we were really concerned. Um, Nemo the Mormon, those, those things that, that he works on, um, although it's not about him, he's a human being behind that podcast, preached to dispatches, you know, so we've got we've got a really good team and the guys who are, who are sort of heading up Sunstone in the UK. It, it's exhausting, right? 
So do you have any thoughts from when you started out, what lessons that you've learned? Because we want to make sure that these guys can keep doing yeah. what they're doing. Yeah. Um, donations. So there's always on every one of these folks, Radio Free Mormon, you know, you kind of hinted at it earlier. Um, I've heard, uh, I've heard, I think I've heard Nemo say it in the beginning. Um, I know that uh, John DeLynn didn't do it in, in the front end. We all go like, hey, I, this church took so much from us and it was deceptive and we paid it our time, our energy, our resources, our money. And when you start deconstructing, you're very skeptical of anybody else who's asking for support. But the reality is that to continue to produce content that helps people, you if you don't get money coming in, you're only going to do it for so long. You're only going to do it for three years, four years, maybe. And if you don't start getting enough money coming in that pays for your time, energy, and resources, you absolutely will burn out and your, your work will be gone. So my two cents is set up some type of platform where people can donate and every three or four episodes, ask people to give. And if you get to the point where even if you just get a couple hundred bucks an episode, you at least split that up between the two of you. You each take a hundred dollars and you go, Hey, it, it, maybe it's worth our time. And maybe you do it forever. You know, um, if people don't have, if, if we don't have money coming in, then these places that content is created will dry up. Tell me somebody who doesn't have money coming in, who did this for 10 years. They don't, yeah. doesn't exist. Podcasts are hard enough, right? Like if you, if you create content that people can watch or listen to, um, the number of those that do decently well, there's very few of them. Um, so my two cents is you're helping people. And I don't just mean you guys, you guys are, but not just you guys to everyone else in the space. If you're creating content that has value, that's growing, your listeners are growing, your viewers are growing. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for support. The moment I started asking for donations and I was so embarrassed to do it. Like, how am I going to be this other thing now that tells people like, Hey, send money this <laughs> way. Funny. Yeah. But it's the only way you keep doing this stuff. Um, if we didn't get to the point where we were bringing in enough that I could, at least in my mind, know that someday I'm going to be able to go part-time and stay home and work on this thing. Eventually I just would have stopped doing it. So send, send money to everybody watching, send money to something. And it doesn't have to be much, send three bucks a month, send five bucks a month. 73% of our donations are recurring donations. People send money every month. And I bet the average donation is five or $10. So, you know, for 50 or a hundred bucks a year, all added up, all of those supporters all added up, end up totaling a good significant amount of money that I now think I can continue this umbrella in a way that we can, long as somebody's producing good content, we can start getting them paid within a year after they start. Um, to me, it's exceptional. I'm, I'm just super excited for all this. So I ask for that. money. That's, that's otherwise just create good content. Um, <laughs> That's, you know, the, the people who are having the good, vibrant conversations, the people who are having the good, vibrant discussions about Mormonism, you're going to keep growing. You guys have done well. You keep growing. Um, you know, people here in the U.S. know who you guys are, right? Like, it's not that you're just a, a over-the-water uh, live stream about Mormonism. It's that folks over here, we're tuning into you guys. So you're, you're producing good content. Don't be afraid to ask for money. Um, some people see that as priestcraft. But if people knew, 
if people knew the amount of time I've spent in the last decade doing this, I bet I, I bet I got paid, you know, a dollar 27 an hour for what I'm doing. Um, it's just not much. I, I, no, I can't remember there, there is a, I think it's an app, but there is some kind of platform where now the, I'm pretty sure there are some church members who are quite high profile who, who speak and, uh, you know, have, have content that is, um, paid only i i wonder if i could remember what that is but yeah if, if priestcraft is a thing it's throughout yeah. the membership let's cut to the chase these these leaders at the top told you that yeah. they were a lay ministry and they're making twice as much at least as i'm making right i take a salary i'll be by the way for transparency reasons i take a salary of sixty-five thousand dollars a year u.s money um we have a payroll company that takes out all the taxes takes care of everything sixty-five thousand dollars a year that's that's my pay is that high? Is that low? You decide. But at least I'm transparent about it. And I, I don't think there'll ever come a point where I get a small living stipend of 120 grand a year. Um, I don't think that's ever going to happen. These guys get uh, free planes. They get free plane trips. They get their meals paid for. They get health insurance. They get uh, free education for their kids. They get uh, a free car. Um, if you want to point fingers at priestcraft, you know, turn around and point it back at the church over there at uh, the church office building. Um, those guys are making money hand over fist uh, and doing quite well at it. Absolutely. Conference talks being bound up into books uh, was a new one on me. But Alana, sorry, on you go. No, no, it's, it's not really anything spectacular. It's just I was thinking, you know, Bill, when you're saying about, you know, people donating, you know, like at the start, I was about like, oh, you know, I don't know. But I think people, what people don't see is, like, we don't just show up here today and say, right, we're just going no. to put random questions for Bill Real. You know, no, Jane no. and I have meetings, you know, we're on the phone, you know, we're planning kind of what we're going to ask. Um, we're checking in with you to make sure, you know, so, and obviously we're, we're just going to start now, but as time goes on, you know, and it does take up time, you know, I, I'm a mum, you know, Jane's a mum, you know, we've got lives, we've got houses to keep tidy, you yeah. know, so it does take up quite a significant amount of time. And then it's also the planning who we're going to ask to get on. We're out there. Well, Jane does most of that. She's the, the one that deserves the credit for that. But trying to figure out who can we ask, you know, I will take credit for Bill Real. I did agree with, I thought that was a good shout. Uh, but, you know, it, it's it, it's so much more than just showing up here and, and talking to you on this, this. And that's what people need to realise. It is time and, and effort, you know, that goes into it. I, I bet, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I bet the amount of time people see you on a screen or the amount of time people listen to my MP3 file of an hour-long conversation, um, I bet total there's five or six times that that goes into an episode. Time you spend thinking about who you're going to get, like you say. Time spent editing something if something needs edited. Time putting it up on social media after you publish it, letting people know that you did it. Time answering questions or emails that people send you. Like yeah. Nobody gets a clue how much time and energy goes into this. I guarantee... When I was at the peak of producing content for Mormon Discussion, I was at least putting in another 40 hours a week outside of my regular job. Yeah. Um, and people don't even comprehend that. And so I, I just, I don't have any patience for people who think that I'm, by the way, I'm, I, the salary this year was 65,000. Last year, I think it was 40 or 45. And the year before that, it was 15,000. And then before that, it was less, you know? So this idea that... Um, I'm just taking all these donations. No, like we have a, a decent size savings account. I don't think it'll ever get to the amount the church has saved, but we want to have a rainy day fund. 
We um, we want we have projects we're trying to work towards. For instance, a virtual museum is something that's on uh, our plate as an entity. We'd really love to create a virtual museum online where people can go into this Mormon museum and see various artifacts from church history and get an honest story about mm. all these various things. The first vision, the three witnesses, the book of Abraham, Joseph's treasure digging. And I would love for that to happen. Um, but, you know, again, we all have projects. We all have things we're trying to do. And money is the only way to get those things done. And, you know, one of the things that um, I think is really important, we in the chat um, in Mormonism Live and you, th these types of spaces, um, Mormon stories, things like that, you know, we'll joke about um, lightly refer to ourselves as a ward, as, you know, having a new ward family. Um Bishop Bill Real is kind of still Bishop Bill Real, and you know, in this space, you know, people are looking to you to see what you're going to say and where the conversation's going to go. And you know, we, we're joking about it, but also, in, in in real terms, when people are experiencing faith transition or are at some point in their faith journey, so often they are not going to their bishops, or if they are, those experiences are so often not positive um you know we we've spoken with with our local bishop when when believing members are questioning or struggling they come to us and so you're still fulfilling a, a pastoral role to a certain extent the amount of i mean i'm just going to purely speculate but certainly the amount of time that, that we've been in this space and we've seen suicidal ideation because of things that have been experience within this faith community is horrific and the church is in a safe space to be able to express that so yeah, thank you for yeah. all you're doing is what i'm trying to say yeah you're welcome and there are people out there on the front lines doing way more than i'm doing um it there's a lot of pain in this community there's mm. a lot of there's a lot yeah. of hard stuff going on um Man, uh, I, I could sit here and share personal stories of, yeah. of people where they really got rescued by this community on this side of things from that community on that side of things. And if, if we weren't here to help, there absolutely would have been and still is to some degree a trauma and loss of life, right? Absolutely. So it's, it's real work helping people to love themselves and to know that they're okay just the way they are. So talk to me about your spirituality just now and talk to me about Almost Awakened because that seems to be reflecting, uh, you know, your, your values and uh, the, the sort of spiritual journey that you've been on. What does your spirituality look like today? Yeah. So my spiritual, so first off, we'll have to define spirituality. And for me, yes, please. it's whenever I'm in awe of the world around me and what's going on inside of me. And so a lot of the time, I'm, almost every day, I'm either reading a book or listening to a podcast or listening to a book on Audible. Um, in fact, uh, let's see here. I'll pull out a couple of good ones. I set a couple aside that I would highly recommend. Ooh. All right. Four Agreements, Miguel Ruiz. Uh, he also wrote The Fifth Agreement. Uh, he also wrote um, Mastery of Self and Mastery of Love. And those are beautiful books. I... You want to talk about spirituality? Those are amazing. If you're in the middle of deconstructing and you want to understand like how our brains work 
when we're on the inside of a faith system, black and white thinking, and we want to know like, what does the map look like to begin wrestling differently with reality? Uh, the Critical Journey by Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulich. Uh, Faith Shift by Kathy Escobar. Oops, Kathy Escobar. Faith Beyond Belief by Margaret Placentra Johnson. Johnston. Um, those are fantastic books. Anytime I'm learning about how my brain works and how other human beings' brains work, anytime I'm learning about um, how to be more of my authentic self and, and to be safe, feeling like I have a chance to belong rather than compromising myself to fit in, I feel spiritual. Uh, I'm an atheist and I'm a mystic. And people go like, what the hell does that mean? Well, what it means is that I don't believe there's a bearded man in the sky or any conscious being out in the universe directing our affairs. And I think the universe is full of mystery and magic. And mm. I am perfectly comfortable with both of those. Um, people say, do you believe in God? And obviously as an atheist, I'm saying no, but there's two arguments I would make, which is one, the, the three things that we say about God, the three characteristics, right? He is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, right? He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and he is everywhere. And 13.2 billion years ago, at least in this universe that we currently live in, there was something that happened, you know, some little, some little thing. And then that creative energy started to expand and move out. And everything that's ever been done has been done by that energy. And that energy is everywhere. And anything that is known is known by that energy um, because we are an outgrowth of it. And so on that level, the creative energy of the universe, which doesn't need to be conscious, is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. Uh, the other thing I always throw out to people is the algae that was in the ocean a million years ago, 10 million years ago, 3 billion years ago, but long before there were any conscious life on the planet. That algae, if you went back to that moment and spoke to that algae and say, can you comprehend what's going to be in another 4 billion years? That algae would be clueless. It couldn't even understand the potential, right? So there's another, if, there's an, if there is, and science says there is, um, if there's another species out there that's been sentient longer than we have for an extra million years, we couldn't even comprehend what that sentient species would be like. And if that sentient species decided to play science, which we all love science, right? Like, like we get curious about how things work and we do hypotheses and experiments and we yeah. test things out. If that sentient species went to another planet, and made that planet somewhat more conducive to life and then and then spread some seeds out or whatever it did and then just stood back and watched and said we're just going to see what life looks like as it develops on another planet then that also is a way to understand maybe an idea of god but without it being some thing in the form of whatever you know mormonism says or whatever any other religion says god is it could be much more mundane and ordinary than we think. And so I, I like wrestling with those kinds of ideas. I like thinking about that kind of stuff. 
And, and I, by the way, I love Jesus. I've got a podcast called The Mythical Jesus uh, at ChristofFaith.org. Uh, and in that podcast, I start off with the premise that I don't believe Jesus was a supernatural half-God being. I don't believe he performed any supernatural miracles. I don't believe he rose on the third day, but I think he's an incredible example of human development, of uh, losing black and white thinking and challenging the outer authorities of your tribe. And I find uh, the life of Christ worth emulating. Mm. And um, to me, even though I don't believe Jesus is in any way God, I think he's worth knowing. Yeah. I love so, that. Can I just jump in real quick? Um, so I'm just thinking about what you're saying, and this is not a criticism on my end, because like, I'm at the place right now where I'm middle ground, where I'm trying to figure out, do I believe in God still? As in, that I was taught my whole life. But I guess I was just thinking there, from the perspective of a church member, um, who might then think, but Bill, how can you go from believing in God and Jesus for all that time to believing that they no longer exist. I'm just thinking that might be something that someone would be like, but, but you believed, you had experiences, you... Yeah, you Bill, what about your spiritual you experiences? You, you know, yeah. you made covenants, all that kind of stuff. So how can you go from that, Bill, to now not believing anything like that? Like, you know, what would you say to someone who asked that yeah. question? I took the same skills I learned in deconstructing Mormonism, and then I dove into the historical Jesus using that same critical thinking, and is much more soft and kind Jesus is isolated in the New Testament. The reality is that there are deep contradictions in the New Testament that are just in the same way the kinds of contradictions you find in Mormonism. And so even just in the four Gospels, people try to reconcile those Gospel accounts so that we have every piece of information in all four stories happening in the life of Jesus, and the reality is that's impossible. And so once you realize that in 1850, say, 1820 to 1850, Mormonism originated and flourished and grew in an age of verifiable history. In other words, there's newspapers, there's journalists, there's witnesses to things who are writing conflicting critical accounts of stories. And yet Mormonism has this way about it that it still flourishes, right? Um, in an age of non-verifiable history, there are only the faithful accounts. There really aren't critics. There isn't journalism. There aren't newspapers. How much easier is it for an embellished uh, supernatural story that's made up myth to be created and to flourish when there's nobody there to challenge the story, right? And so once I recognize that like, oh, look at all the stuff in Mormonism that isn't the way they said it was, and we have a historical record, and we have critics who are publishing their material as well, how much easier would it be in the meridian of time for those kinds of things to flourish even better. And by both recognizing the contradictions that make the story absurd and the environment which allowed it to flourish anyway, I just came to a point where I, I would be intellectually dishonest with myself if I continued to believe 
that Jesus walked on water and turned water into wine and rose on the third day? When I first um, heard the mythical Jesus being, the historical Jesus, excuse me, being spoken about, I, I just wasn't ready to go there. Um, I, I felt sort of physically quite, quite ill. Um, being able to keep Jesus and see value in the mythologies is hugely helpful and has sort of given me permission to, okay, it's okay, you can look at this. It's it's all going to be okay. Um, but I, I want to, I, I wonder what you would, if, if you could speak to, you know, the, the Bishop Bill Real who'd, who'd contacted John Dillon and said, you know, you're being too critical here. Um, <laughs> if you could contact, you know, if, if you could speak to the you then, what would you want you to know? Uh, first, let me go back to the historical Jesus for one second, yes, which please. is I did like a seven part series on Mormon discussion titled The Historical Jesus. Okay. Uh, part one tackles Mark, which is the first book in chronology of the four gospels. Second one tackles the Q source. Third one tackles Matthew. Fourth one tackles Luke. The fifth one tackles John. And then I think there's a sixth part that wraps it all up and talks about it. It's not presented in a uh, def definite disbelieving way. It's I'm still kind of a little soft in that. I'm coming from my Mormon lens. So if people want to <laughs> tackle the historical Jesus from a little bit more faithful perspective, I think that's a great series uh, to do so. Now, yeah, to I what I would say, yet. <laughs> yeah, and and you know what's going to happen when you do, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's that's why uh, it feels it makes me feel a little bit queasy. I, I but that's it. the beauty of this journey is is that we don't have to do it all at the one time when, no. when I'm ready for it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Part, part of this is consent, right? Like I'm going to tell you that, hey, I'm going to tackle that issue. You're welcome to listen to it and you want to. And you choose when your uh, when your ground is ready to tackle that. Yep. Uh, for me, it was reading Reza Aslan's book, Zealot. Uh, there was a podcast that was done at a major university. It was like 12 parts. I don't remember what it was, but it was very well done on the historical Jesus. And then, you know, Bart Ehrman and other things I'd listened to. I really spent probably about a year really diving into the historical Jesus. And again, I, I try to be a rational thinker. And so, you know, as you well know, there's problems there. And when you're ready for them, they'll be there ready for you. Um, in terms of what I would say to my younger self, I don't think I would say anything. I, I think I like the yeah. path. I think I like the journey the way it happened. And I don't think I'd want to tamper with that. I don't, I don't think I'd want to mess it up. Um, there's a story inside the church that people leave and they're miserable. And I'll be honest, both inside the church and out, I'm having the time of my life. Um, I, I couldn't be having more fun than I'm having. Um, I've got the, the best of friends. Um, I feel really good about who I am. I really like the way I show up in the world. I like the things I'm learning and thinking about. Um, you know, Kwaku, one of my favorite guys there, Kwaku tries to always tell a story that Bill Reel's miserable, but I would suggest if anybody wants, I'll, I'll give you a list of my top, you know, 150 friends and you message them and say, ask them if they've ever seen Bill sad or miserable or have a bad day outside of his mother dying from cancer or some other tragic thing happening. Um, I wake up on the right side of the bed every day and I'm having a blast. Um, this, this couldn't be more fun. And, and by the way, let me note that that's not true for everyone. Some no. people can't help that their experience is messed up. 
some people are in life situations or the things that go on in their mind. Um, they can't help but struggle. And uh, I don't want to downplay that at all. I just don't I think, like... I think when you're taught in the church for so many years, you know, I've always been taught this from a young age, that, you know, you can't find true happiness unless you're within the walls of the church. Like, you'll yeah. never be happy. So, like, I've seen someone very early on in the comments mentioning something that I totally agreed with, you know, that when you leave the church or if you're having, like I've spoke to Jane at this, when you're having issues in life, you know, I go back to, you know, what's the typical question you're asked if you go to a priesthood leader and say, you know, I'm really low right now, I'm, I'm struggling with things, life's hard, you know, what do they ask you? Are you praying? Are you reading your scriptures? Are you yeah. attending all your meetings? You know, it's always down to you. And so I think, you know, um, that's what someone had said, you know, when you leave the church, like if you have mental health, like someone had said, you know, if you're depressed or low, like that's because you've left the church. That's because you're not finding Jesus. You're not doing the things. And, you know, now looking at that, like I would have believed that at one point, like I would have been like, yeah, as I, I need to do better. I need to be doing more. But but now that I, I'm in a better place and a healthier place, I look at my mental health and, and it's nothing to do with leaving the church. Now, don't get me wrong, my mental health has been affected by leaving the church, quite rightly so. Uh, you know, because I've, as I've said, I've had the anger, I've had the emotional yeah. side, I've had the tears, I've had the hurt, the pain, you know, seeing my family hurt and seeing my friends getting hurt on, you know, so that does come. But I wouldn't say it's because I left the church that I'm going through that. It's because it's real part of life. It's part of your learning and your growth. And, and has it been hard leaving the church? Yes, because I'm still figuring things out. I'm still figuring out what I believe, who I am as a person outside the church. So it's it's very difficult. But I wouldn't blame my mental health or feeling depressed on being because I've left the church. Because like you, Bill, I, I feel I'm so, so much happier without it. Yeah, so I think, much happier. I, I think the secret, again, forget insider, outsider language. I think the secret is that every one of us is completely alien to each other. The, the way each human brain thinks is independently autonomous from the way any other human brain thinks. The things you struggle with or the things I struggle with are completely different. People who have depression or are prone to depression, and I'm not talking about depression because something's hard in your life right now, depression that has been debilitating for a long period of time. Whether you're in the church or not, you're going to have those kinds of battles. By leaving the church, though, you get to let go of at least some of the shame some of the manipulation, some of the coercion, some of the gaslighting, some of the other things that happen. And so often in the church, the reason high demand fundamentalist religions are called high demand fundamentalist religions is because they impose on you that you compromise your autonomous self so that you fit into a larger tribe, a collective group. And anytime you compromise yourself, you are making an effort to fit in. I'm showing up and I'm not being my real self. I'm being a pretend version of myself so that you will like me and accept me and I can belong, but it's not real belonging. Belonging is when you are you and I go, hey, be you. For example, I'm at a party three or four days ago, 15 of my friends, and we're talking real vulnerable. And I've got friends there who are telling me about their... Um, their struggle to see reality for what it is. Like they really are struggling with some sort of, I don't want to say like schizophrenia because that's an extreme, but some sort of thing going on in their head where they struggle to know what's real and what isn't right. I have another friend who's telling me about their lifelong depression 
And I'm just sitting there and holding space for that. Like, man, that's got to be so tough. Here's the ways in which I relate, but I also can't even know possibly what that's like, but I love you. And you're, and you're welcome to just be your full self. And the moment you find people that you don't have to fit in anymore and compromise yourself, but you just get to be you, then shame is gone. Yep. Then, then, uh, the guilt, then the need inside your head to go like, oh, I have to present this version of myself so that I can be allowed to be in this space with these other people. Those are the things that people don't get. But when you leave the church, that's what gets better. Your mental well-being will generally be the same as you were in. And to some, it is extreme. To some, it's a night and day difference. And as you're pointing out, while you're going through the deconstruction, it can be hell, right? It can be full of stuff. But once you put some distance between you and the church, generally speaking, I think the majority of human beings who leave report greater well-being better well-being, improved well-being, because the mechanisms that imposed on them that they compromise themselves are gone and they get to be more vulnerable about who they are. Um, and I think that's magic, by the way. So yeah, you you talk about um, what your spirituality looks like today and you brought up um, a name that may be familiar to a few of our viewers, Quaker. Um, (laughs) We wanted to, uh, what I'd really like to ask you about is when you talk about how, um, you know, the the energy that has been present from the beginning of the universe is present in everything right now, it kind of puts a different light on conflict when we can see that we are all connected and the same and um, all of these things Mm. you handled what happened with Midnight Mormons um, so beautifully would you be able to sort of let our viewers know a little bit about what happened there and how you managed to avoid conflict in a situation that was pretty much calling you out and was incredibly inappropriate would you be comfortable to speak about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, midnight Mormons are these three guys, Kwaku, Cardin Ellis, and, uh, uh, what's the last one's name? Um, Whitbeck, Brad Whitbeck. And, uh, by the way, just a note, I don't know that they are paid actors from the church, by the way, but I, I will tell you this, Cardin Ellis is an actor. If you go look up Google and type in Cardinalis, you'll see that he was an actor before he did this. Kwaku was an actor before he did this. And Brad Whitbeck, uh, to a lesser extent, is an amateur stand-up comedian prior to doing this. Um, it all seems odd, but I'll just let that sit there. These guys on their channel, um, Midnight Mormons, their, their effort is to essentially be the the, the nasty, um, mean-spirited voices towards those on the outside criticizing the church. And at least in the past, they've, they've at various points in their time doing that with various channels, not necessarily Midnight Mormons, have received funding from the More Good Foundation, who receives its funding from the church and donors within the church who, who essentially are looking to put their money towards helping these things happen. Those three guys travel to a studio multiple times a month and record things. And yet I can't figure out where their money's coming from and they aren't volunteering it. I don't think, um, 
they seem a little less transparent than I know how to be. And um, what they did was they, I, um, trying to think offhand how it all started. Uh, but I invited the Midnight Mormons, one, two, three of them, into a long form conversation. Meaning just like Joe Rogan or say Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson in their debates, the idea is that you sit down and you steel man each other's positions. In other words, you represent them fairly. And you ask, did I get that right? Is that, is that how you understand this issue? And then that person can say, no, you're misunderstanding me still. Here's how I would explain it. And you work at that until you have their position down. Once you do, then you start to ask logical questions that walk them into the absurdity of their position. They uh, Kwaku messaged me and declined that. He didn't want to participate in that. And instead said, I'd rather do a debate. Will you do a debate? And I said, I have no interest in a debate. Debates work a certain way where funny lines and um, kind of skirting around issues can be productive to the audience. Or as I think that debate essentially turned out, it felt very unproductive. I think, I think most people left that debate still with the side that they wanted to be with. I found much more useful the conversation that I had per se with Jim Bennett which was like 13, 14 hours long. And we got to push against each other. And we got to talk about the issues in much more detailed context. And I think that's the kind of conversation that is productive. Um, and so then all of a sudden the Midnight Mormons claimed that I invited them to a debate. And then when they agreed, I wouldn't take them up on it. And that so missed the mark on what actually happened. Um, and so eventually Radio Free Mormon took them up on it, did the debate. And even during the debate itself, they're trying to get me to participate <laughs> to the point where they're even making accusations against me and my wife while we're in the crowd, which I just thought was horrendous. I, I couldn't imagine doing that to another human being. Um, and by the way, I've never cheated on my wife, ever, never. And, and let's just be, because that, that was actually what, you know, what I'm, I'm really getting at. I think it's one thing to be challenging. It's one thing to, you know, be doing the, we've all tried to have arguments with teenage kids, right? We've all yeah. tried to correct them. You're going to get nowhere. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, it just shows the level of maturity. Well, it? yeah, I mean, they're kids. But what happens when Alana and I stayed up to watch the, the, the debate what happened at the beginning of that was so horrific that I cannot, I, you know, I remember saying, um, and a few other of us were, were sort of saying how embarrassed we felt to be aligned with a church where that's what you're representing, that's your 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 best hope. It, it was vile. So, yeah, if you, please do continue, but we just really wanted to underline that, you know, we were saying that if Alana had been in the audience, you know, the, the defender <laughs> of her friends, she, they, she would have run on the stage and just been like, you don't get to do that. Um, it, it was they, not they, okay. Yeah. They, they wore bulletproof vests on the outside of their clothes. Like, Don't even get me started on that. They, at the beginning, they brought an extra mic trying to rope me into being part of it. I, I, I already knew it wasn't going to be fruitful. And I don't care about winning a debate. Mm -hmm. What I care about is giving people listening a fair, balanced uh, perspective on these messy issues so that people can make informed decisions. Had I participated in the debate, anytime it was my turn to talk, I would have just sat down on the edge of the stage and looked at the audience 
and just talk to them about how messy this all is and how much it hurts people to have to deconstruct it. I wouldn't have cared about debating them on any issue. Um, I just wouldn't have played their game. And it seemed like at every turn, it's a game. Again, who wears bulletproof vest on the outside of their clothes? Um, Who brings an extra mic and tries to make the platform different than what was agreed upon and everybody prepared for? None of it makes sense unless you understand it is just uh, immature kids trying to get a rise out of an audience or trying to get an extra view or two to whatever they're doing. And I think that's super gracious. However, I think, uh, again, what the level they took it to was something past that, which was absolutely abominable. Um, And I am so sorry that you and your wife were exposed to that. Yeah, Um, notice, by the way, notice. Notice that the church came out. They made themselves look stupid, really, more than anything, in my opinion. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't like to say that, but, you know. Yeah, and in fact, they did a video where they talk about me bringing up points about how members and non-members alike have spiritual experiences. And I've got a certain argument that I'm trying to make about how if an outsider has a spiritual experience to the same extent of an insider and the truths that are known by both conflict with each other, how can we know that our spiritual experiences inside the church are trustable and the spiritual experiences outside the church aren't, right? Mm-hmm. And and they they ended up creating some straw man and turning it into something I wasn't arguing. So then Radio Free Mormon and I on Mormonism Live did an episode talking about that. I shared it with Brad Whitbeck. I said, hey, you guys are welcome to actually deal with the real argument I made, but nothing. They, they don't do that. Again, if you come at me with... Uh, an argument that is persuasive, you can bet your ass, sorry, you can bet your ass that I will deal with it, right? And um, it, it strikes me as to they're really no different than the church. They are not transparent. They're not mm-hmm. honest. They're not forthright. And by the way, notice that immediately after that debate, the church came out with uh, a statement asking its members to play nice. And you can uh, you can bet that that debate had at least some influence on that statement coming out a, a week or two later where the church says like, we're not going to um, enter spaces where we deal with our critics and we are mean spirited and rude and not nice. The church realizes that's bad PR. And I think radio free Mormons said enough things about the messiness that anybody listening who was innocent and just wondering what's going on here would be led to know there were lots of things in church history that they weren't prepared to know and now go diving down the rabbit hole to find them. So how anyway. do you avoid feeling conflict or experiencing conflict with, how, how do you process the feelings of um, when you are attacked to that extent? Because let's face it, Kweku, that was very public. Um, we all got to sit and experience that along with you, you're going to have to be attacked from all sorts of different sources, never mind, you know, the the church itself. How do you cope with conflict? Yeah, Brene Brown says, if you're not in the arena, also getting your ass kicked, I'm not interested in your feedback. And uh, so it's it's recognizing, um, let's see here. So it's recognizing that Whenever you speak out against uh, authorities, whenever you speak out against systems, whenever you try to shine a light on uh, a collective uh, unhealthiness, 
there are going to be people who push back, right? Um, sometimes the apologetic response <laughs> is, hey, there are people in our church who know the messy issues and they still believe. And the reality is that there are people in all kinds of systems, ones that we agree that are blatantly not true, Scientology, for instance, who know the issues and still believe. Having believers in a system and them being informed uh, doesn't make the system true. And so you just recognize that anytime you uh, shine a light on unhealthiness and things that are wrong, you you expect there to be pushback. And I've had that for, you know, most of the feedback I get is by and far positive, 99% of it. But I've had a, a father message me once, absolutely pissed at me that that I took his kids out of the church. That is his daughter <laughs> and his son-in-law left. Uh, Fair Mormon, Brian Hales and uh, Scott Gordon and Steve Densley and John Lynch. Uh, those guys have attacked me from time to time. Uh, anytime I ask the logical follow-up question, they all suddenly have to leave the chat and can't be part of the conversation anymore. Um, and Quaku is just another run of that. The difference is that Quaku and his group have no problem crossing deep lines of making assumptions, allegations, accusations for which there is an evidence for. And uh, it's just that that happens. I'm okay with that. I, I like me. I like the way I show up in the world. And so it doesn't really bother me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. And, and I love that. Yeah. Um, okay. Alana, we have some questions from some of our viewers. If you're okay to maybe start preparing that, I'm going to, I'm going to ask Bill a sort of final big question. Um, is there anything that you'd like to say about what you're seeing happening in the UK just now? How how aware is an American audience of what's going on? And my part two for that question is, especially with your background as an apologist, um, an ex-apologist, can these new apologetics save the church? Because that's what they're sending mm. out here. Yeah, so... When your system isn't what it claims to be, regardless of whether you don't address the problems that are right there readily available on the internet, whether you address the problems and obfuscate them and skirt around them and whitewash them and you know write out carefully worded denials, whether you try to help people to have faith while acknowledging it's messy. In other words, no matter what approach you take, there's still an elephant in the room and it's that there's a bunch of mess and it isn't adding up. The more you talk about it, the more you point people. By the way, notice that the church has gotten away from its curriculum involving history. Now it's the come follow me and they're very fluffy questions. And um, the church is little by little getting out of the business of historical claims and talking about its history because nothing's working. Elder Holland told me voice to voice in a phone call that they don't have good answers. Marlon Jensen told me voice to voice in a phone call, they don't have good answers. Um, when your system is absurd and there are contradictions in every single, by the way, notice every single truth claim that Mormonism makes 
is attached to a historical event that it claims happened and that the historical record seems to put every single one of those issues more in favor with the critic's perspective than the church's perspective. So whenever you talk about it, whenever you deal with it, whenever you try to help somebody in a faith crisis from a faithful position, at the end of the day, you're almost always validating that it doesn't add up in some way, shape, or form. And that only, and that only motivates people to dive deeper into the rabbit hole and to realize like this thing is messy and doesn't add up. So I don't think any solution works. The only thing that works, and they're doing it, the only thing that works is to completely water down the church so it's Methodism with another book. And once they get to that point where like, hey, we're a hundred years past really dealing with these issues, and eventually they have to confront them. You're going to have to apologize for the race ban. You're going to have to let LGBT people have full fellowship in the church. You're going to have to acknowledge that pieces of your history are completely messy and that the more rational answers on the critic's side but until they get there, people are going to constantly find the rabbit hole. I, I was surprised, and I think this is true, I was surprised to learn that there are more people leaving the church today than yesterday, and more people yesterday than the day before. And I, I, I thought like November 2015 is going to be this precipice moment where so many people did leave that now the people who stay just don't care if it adds up or not, right? But the reality is that I look at ex-Mormon Reddit and it is growing by the day. I see these leaders and they are going to talk to the youth and they are trying to inoculate the youth left and right. They are losing people in droves. But didn't Brad um, Wilcox say that that's not the case? Yeah, so did so did uh, Quentin Cook, but I don't give a care what they he say. He said there's no more leaving today than has left in the past. And I was just screaming at the screen, BS, yes. The, when you recognize that Thing they the things they say never match the actual reality. You stop trusting what they say. Like they don't tell the truth. Yeah. Um, Quentin Cook used a specific moment in history where the church cleaned up its roles a little bit and it got rid of a lot of people who had whatever re requested to resign and they hadn't honored it or whatever else had happened. And he used that moment to then talk about all of the church's history and say the church has never been stronger. The reality is, it is absolutely obvious. Go back 20 years. I knew one person 20 years ago in my ward or stake who left over losing faith, who was all in prior to that. Today, every member of the church knows 10 people and half of them are in their family. They know people in their ward. They know people in their home. They know their son-in-law, their daughter-in-law, their aunt, their uncle. They know people who have left all over the place. Notice, too, the, um, the collective arrogance 20 years ago of going to someone's house and sharing a Book of Mormon with them and going, like, I have the truth. And today, members are like, I don't want to talk about it. Like, there's something there. I don't want to talk about it. It is so obvious that people are leaving the church in droves that we all know people who have left. We all know lots of people who have left because it's much more significant than two decades ago. Um, Quentin Cook just lied again, but I, I expect that. I don't expect anything other than them to lie. That's their MO. They are yeah. as transparent as they know how to be. Um, every, <laughs> every one of my friends, every, my 
my husband has never been a member of the church um and amazingly we've, we've never had any conflict about it it's just not a thing um but my kids have left and all of Alana's family now mm. um every single there's a lot of people in my family safe person no, we're not seeing people talking about the church even in facebook now where you know things are very seem to be very kept toward and state pages if at all but yeah people are not talking about the church yeah. Yeah. okay alana shall we hand over to you for some viewer questions yeah sorry um so we have three questions from Mark Johnson I'm thinking, well, I asked the last one, but I can't help myself, so I'm gonna ask <laughs> it. Um so it just first of all I'll ask you, how does St. George compare to Ohio? All right, number one, the winter has essentially no snow. It snowed today for about 20 minutes. I made a snowball as I got back from taking my kid to school and I brought it into my wife and I put it in her sink as she was getting ready to brush her teeth. <laughs> And uh, she was like, man, damn it. Oh, and I'm like, come on, babe. I, we should probably move since there's snow here in St. George now too. But in Ohio, the winters, the winters were rough here in Southern Utah. You essentially have mountains that the snow is on. You can see it. It's pretty, but you might get a dusting once a year and that's it. So the weather is much more beautiful. It is hot in the summer, 113 degrees, 110 degrees, but it's a dry heat. I have COPD. I have a breathing issue. My lungs don't yeah. work right. And uh, here in Southern Utah, I breathe easier. In Ohio, 85 degrees and humid. Like you got out of the shower and you felt like you needed to just jump back right back in and yeah. wash yourself up again. Here in Southern Utah, like you can go on a hike at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. It's 113 degrees out and you don't really feel like that uncomfortable. It's not really that bad. Um, I like Mormonism for certain reasons. It makes for clean neighborhoods. It makes for a lower crime rate. Um, the worst thing I really have to worry about is someone stealing the bicycle out of my driveway. Um, <laughs> that's really the worst thing that's probably going to happen. And again, there's crime, but it it just seems like it's smaller and more out of sight. Um, I like being here. The The really cool thing is the post-Mormon community. Uh, if you go on to Facebook and find the group uh, post uh, Southern Utah Post-Mormon Support Group, there's like a, I don't know, 1200 people in there or something. And they're all like the coolest of people. These people have deconstructed an unhealthy system and they're ready to show up their real self. And so when I get together with these people, they're, they're just good human beings who are ready to be their real self and let you see it. Um, I I've made the best of friendships here, uh, real friendships. So those are probably the things that stand out the most. And I, I fly an LGBT flag in my front driveway, oh, so the members of the church don't bother me. You know, I'm an excommunicated LGBT ally. They leave me alone. They don't even wave at me when I'm out there. So they stay they, <laughs> they stay, stay away, away from me, and I stay away from them. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. So Mark has asked again. You know, you can not refuse, but you can you can pass on answering any questions if you don't feel comfortable. He says. Have have you ever been contacted by doubting GAs? No need to give names. No. Um, you know, we hear the stories from Grant Palmer and uh, uh, Enzio Bushy, I think was the name of the uh, 70 who went to him and said, hey, these guys get a million bucks when they get in to pay off all their debts. And 
there, you know, all the, all the agreements they make that keep them from ever falling away later on. You wonder, you wonder why leaders don't leave the top 15 really. And once you understand what Grant Palmer was saying, and if you give any credence to that, it becomes very clear. Uh, what does happen though, um, is that people reach out to me and tell me things that are going on. So various moles inside the church, various moles inside BYU. Uh, one mole who he doesn't want to go public yet, but he knows of something very significantly atrocious and unhealthy that happened to one of the top 15's uh, son and some deep abuse that occurred. And I'd love to go public with it, but I don't have a right yet to tell that yeah. story, right? I, by the way, I'm a big believer that people's stories belong to them. Yeah, and you'll so. notice if, if you hang out with me, if you're one of my friends, you'll notice that gossip never gets back to someone else from something that happened with you. If you share something with me, uh, unless that story is absolutely like praising you because you won an award or you did something great, I never say anything about my friends to other friends that would compromise them or have them feeling shame or embarrassment. People's stories are sacred. Yep. So let everyone tell their own story. Um, the worst thing that can happen is I've had people tell me like, Bill, I know you still believe. I know you do. And I'm like, really? Like you're inside my head and you know, I believe like that's absurd. Um, never tell someone else a story. So I've had people come to me and, and I know at this point that there's something about the top 15 that a majority of them have compromised themselves in ways that the church bailed them out or bailed out their child, or bailed out their sister, that they on some level owe the church a favor. Um, and, and I don't know how to make sense of that, but there's enough stories out there, Quentin Cook in the hospital, Elder Ballard in music, the Valley City Music Hall. Um, I'm just trying to think offhand. Um, oh, there were three or four others, but they're, they're slipping past me. President Monson's son being uh, Tom Monson Jr., uh, being let go uh, from his law firm and then be because of allegedly some sexual harassment with a woman by the name of Jennifer Bottomley, I think is her name, and uh, ends up being hired by Curtin and McConkie shortly thereafter when he would have been unhirable at any other law firm. Yeah. So there is this, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, I compromise myself, you bail me out. And when they bring somebody into that top 15, they have a pretty good assurance through all the mechanisms of that vetting process and the agreements made that that person is going to be a company man and be loyal at all cost. And you see that those leaders will say sometimes something in private, but then when called out on it publicly, they are company men. They will be in line. And then you go look at, again, another little rant. When you go look at Hubie Brown's statement about the... Um, apostolic oath, I think is what it's called, where they they get to talk about issues, but the moment a decision is made by the majority, every single one of them gets in line and they act as if it was voted unanimously, even though it wasn't. Yeah. And so what's the point in voting at all if like if you the minority vote really doesn't it doesn't count at all in any kind yeah. of say, right? Yeah. Anyway, sure. there's so, there's more thing. I I'm by the way, funny. I Love all this. So great. Ask I'm anything. just going to throw this one in. At first I said to you, and I'm not going to ask it, but I just can't help it since we've already talked about him. Mark Johnson wants to know, is Kwaku on your Christmas card list? 
Is Quaku on my Christmas card list? No, yeah. no. Um, I think it will be interesting to see how what happens to him, because yeah. I think when you are all in and you you agree to defend this thing. At some point, if it does fall apart, it falls apart hard. I just said that to you the other day, Jen, and I didn't say it quite so nicely as you've, <laughs> you know. And it's just because I guess, like, when I say things like that in the heat of the moment, it's not necessarily like that I would wish that on anyone. But when I see the way he treats people, that you know, as much as I don't know you and RFM personally, you know, I've listened to you, I've got to know you through that. Like when I see him personally attacking people, like Jane will tell you, like I've got your back. I want blood, you know. So I, I did see it a bit more. I'm like, I can't wait till the day it all comes crashing down round about him, you know. Yes. And I don't. I, now, now I don't mean it that way because I know how hard it can be. But at the time, I'm just like, you know, because I just oh, get so she, defensive of people. She will call down the seven plagues of <laughs> Egypt <laughs> on your face uh, when you mess with uh, someone that she loves. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Um, okay, so this is from Lance. I'm just trying to see. We might have covered some of this. I'm just going to read his questions anyway. And if we've already covered it, we don't need to go into detail. Um, so he's saying, the following may, may be interesting. Has Bill thought about these types of questions? What's his Mormonism motivation now? What are his Mormonism goals? Now, I'm not sure if he's talking about your podcast or, yeah. you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. So essentially, some people when you see me put a post on Facebook or you see me talking on Mormonism live on Wednesdays, it's easy to think that I'm obsessed with Mormonism and that's what occupies my life. Again, I would ask you to go ask my friends how much I talk about Mormonism. It's, it's a funny punchline to get a laugh at a party, but then the, the conversations almost entirely revolve around this side of life and how we can all validate each other and help each other to be better human beings. And it has nothing to do with Mormonism. Um, my goals, like I said at the beginning, I'm now at a place where I feel comfortable enough and happy enough. And the podcast is doing well enough, the entity that I think I can go the rest of my life being in this space and helping people. And my goal really is I want to take every single messy issue and I want to deconstruct it so that if anybody goes online and goes into a Google search bar and says, I want to know about Mountain Meadows Massacre, I want to know about Joseph Smith's treasure digging, they're going to come across an episode done by Mormon Discussion Incorporated in one of its podcasts that thoroughly goes in and deconstructs the issue and gives them a full laid out response of why this issue is messy, what the believers say, how they try to reconcile that, what the critic points to as the follow-up questions, and then help that person to have informed uh, information to make informed decisions about how they'll live out their life. And I think we're doing that. I mean, you, you look at the episode we did on president Nelson's flight that RFM tackled uh, the one we did on the 1886 revelation by John Taylor uh, that I came up with. Um, I think every time we tackle a historical issue, I don't think there's anybody doing it better than Mormonism live. And, uh, and I'm proud of the content we're producing in the various podcasts we have. Um, I think marriage on a tightrope is helping people navigate mixed faith marriages better than any other entity out there. And I'm just, I'm thrilled with the work that people are doing under this umbrella and I'm proud to be a part of it. And I hope that 20 years from now, my health is good enough that I'm still participating in some way and helping people deconstruct unhealthy systems. 
Thank you. So the next one, we might have covered some of that already. He's just saying the same kind of question for spiritual motivation and goals. Are they any different or has everything like that left been left behind now? Okay, say that again. I don't I don't know what he's asking. Yeah, so he's talking about, because he said, like, what is your Mormon motivation and what are your Mormonism goals? He's saying same question for your spiritual mo motivation. Oh, goals. Yeah. Are they okay. any different or has everything like that been left behind now? Yeah, my spiritual goal. So I wake up every day trying to be, trying to look in the mirror and be honest about my own shadows, my own unhealthiness. I, um, if you, if my wife were sitting here with me, we could sit and have a conversation about how much of a jerk I was on the front end of our marriage. I gaslighted her. I manipulated her. I, whenever I got a disturbance inside me, I would manipulate the outside world so that I could be okay again. And I am deeply learning kind of, kind of a Buddhist approach. I'm deeply learning to sit with my disturbances and to recognize that they're inside me and they don't have to say anything about what anyone else is doing. So um, one I'm really struggling with right now is I have a child in my home who doesn't get up when his alarm clock goes off. He, he cheats and stays up late past his bedtime when no one's looking. And I'm, I'm having anger issues and I'm yelling at him because it's not going the way I want it to go. Well, so what? The world doesn't go the way we want it to go. We can all learn to just sit with ourselves and go like, hey, I can still show up healthy and respond appropriately to anything that's going on in my life rather than losing my shiz and going, you know, bonkers on somebody because the world <laughs> isn't happening the way I want it to. The world unfolds in front of you just the way it does. And our egos are always trying to get us to manipulate our world and to dismiss fair criticisms about us so that we can feel safe and okay. The real inner work happens when you look in the mirror and say, enough of that. I can see it. I see what I'm doing. That's not okay. And you start really working hard. So books like that Fifth Agreement, um, uh, Esther Perel's Mating in Captivity, uh, Christopher Ryan and his, uh, I'm trying to think what his wife's name is. I wrote it down here somewhere in case it came up. Um, uh, Cecilda Jetha. Sorry, it's a little bit of a strange name, so I never remember it right. Christopher Ryan and Cecilda Jetha, Sex at Dawn. Uh, sexuality. When you get Mormonism tells you to get married young and it has a plan for you. And so you're, you're both think you're on the same page. Like, Oh, we're going to get married. It's all going to work out. We're going to have 32 kids. We're going to multiply and replenish the earth. Um, and what you don't realize when you get married at 19, 20, 23, whatever, you haven't even worked out knowing who you are yet. And so there are issues. And I think one of the hardest ones is sexuality. And I don't have all the answers there, but I know that my sexuality inside is messy. I know that my wife on the front end of our marriage had an idea of what my sexuality was, and I pretended to be parts of that. And now that we're both on the other side of life and we are very much, we very much honor each other in that we allow each other to be that person who they are. And so there came a point where it became very safe to open up and go like, hey, here's who I am inside. And she said, hey, here's who I am inside. And we renegotiated kind of like how, what, what are your needs, right? Like it used to be, not to get really weird here, but used to be a point in our lives where you couldn't express any parts of your sexuality that were taboo to the point of even like touching yourself, right? Like, like the world, the church world says like that's sin, you can't do that. And so anytime you did that, you had to 
you know, be in the shadows doing it. And, it, you know, so the guy, so again, the guy gets up at 2 a.m. and gets on porn in the computer because it's so taboo and so full of shame. He doesn't have a healthy way to do it. Yeah. So on this side of my life, um, my wife and I have open, honest negotiation and conversation about our sexuality. And we try to make as much space as possible within our agreements to show up the way you need to show up to be your healthiest, best self. Um, and I'm doing that in every aspect of my life. I'm trying to sit honestly with my unhealthiness. I'm trying to cut as much slack for other people's unhealthiness. And I'm trying to just own that being a human being is complex and difficult. And it's full of stuff that's got us all messed up inside. And to let people be their their most honest version of themselves without feeling shame and guilt, coercion and manipulation from me. And I also try to help them not feel it from anybody else. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. Okay. I'll just skip on to the next question. Um, so Sarah Elizabeth is asking, what three changes would you most like to see in the church? The LGBT issue has to be number one because I think yeah. it just relie it relieves not only pain and um, untenable trauma to a small group of members and people who are out, but it also relieves a more general trauma and tension and anxiety among the collective consciousness of our faith, right? Like, even if you're not LGBT, I I'm not... I'm as I'm I'm a zero on the Kinsey scale. I I don't I don't have any homosexual uh, inclination in me, and and yet I feel trauma with that segment of the church, whether in or people who have deconstructed who are homosexual and out, and and I think a lot of us are that way. I think a lot of believers feel that tension. They can kind of see that something isn't right. There's a double standard. And we're not treating these people as human beings. So I think that would be the number one change. Number two is I would probably go more general and say, we start apologizing for mistakes. Like, let's lay our history out there. Let's, let's encourage people to learn the history from all sides. And let's allow people, if the Holy Ghost is real, we can allow people to use the Holy Ghost and make decisions about what is true and what isn't it seems like we want to have it both ways, right? Like you have the Holy Ghost and that gives you more ability than the rest of humanity to know right from wrong. But please don't read the critics. Don't read the anti-Mormons. The Holy Ghost won't help you there. Um, so I would I would put the history out um, and I would start apologizing for mistakes up front and honestly. And I think if you did those three things, I think all the other things would fall right into line. You couldn't hold the other unhealthiness if you did those three. Yeah, sure. Okay, so I think I must have missed a question that was going up and the change just informed me. Uh, so Julian is asking, what do you think is the most important thing that we are not talking about? The fact that prophets, seers, and revelators seem no better and maybe even worse and almost probably likely worse. Let me say it differently. The, that prophet seers and revelators are no better and almost assuredly worse at discerning healthy ways that we should interact with each other and healthy ways to deal with our complex history than somebody who's been excommunicated for apostasy. Like we're in, we have guys at the top 
who claim to talk to God, but seem almost to always get it wrong. So either God is really not that easy to work with, or they're not what they claim to be. Yep. I'm just trying to quickly scroll and make sure I've not missed any. Um... So while, while you're finishing up there, okay, I have a couple of quickfire questions too. First of all, um, you talked about in your interviews with John Dillon as you were preparing to go um, through the excommunication process. You talked about how you didn't know, you were concerned about what the impact was going to be on your family. Um, how did that pan out? Yeah, my wife and I deconstructed pretty much at the same time. She was much more over social issues and I was much more over history. Um, but we were on the same page at almost every moment. My children, unbeknownst to me, were really deconstructing at the same time as well for their own reasons. I wasn't, it wasn't like, um, I was in their face every day going like, hey guys, listen to my podcast. I'm deconstructing Mormonism. You should too. Um, it was really like I didn't put my uh, experience in their face so that they could live their own life and make their own decisions. And my two daughters very much struggled with the inequality of how we treat people who are different inside Mormonism. Women and men, people of color and white people, uh, LGBT people and straight people, almost every time there is a outward identifying discrepancy between human beings, the church teaches us to have insiders and outsiders, people we include and people we marginalize. My two daughters were deconstructing all of that. My two boys are thinkers like me, and they were much like, like my one son's like, dad, I, I, already, I always knew all along that this didn't add up. And my other son, when he was eight years old, when the missionaries were teaching him, um, we had the missionaries teach him anyway, even though he was eight and he was a born in the covenant, he could have just gotten baptized. Um, he told the missionaries, he's like, what if there isn't a God? Like, what if it isn't true? And so I just, as we got to the point where the excommunication happened, my entire family was already mentally out. And I was really the last one wanting to go to church. You know, believe it or not, Bill Real was the last one in his family who wanted to go. And um, my two daughters resigned the day I got my uh, excommunication notice. My wife resigned that day as well. And then my youngest son is still on the rolls. No one's ever come to check on him, by the way. Not once. That seems weird, doesn't it? Like somebody's on the rolls in the missionaries. Yeah. They've never called. They've never knocked. Like somebody said, don't go there, right? Um, and then my oldest son is kind of kind of lazy in this regard. So he did the thing through Quit Mormon. But just as he was doing it, they came out with all the red tape to do it. You, know, you had to have a notarized letter and yeah. a copy of your driver's license and this and that. And uh, isn't it weird that it's harder to get out of this thing than it is to get into it? That seems strange to me. So is that is that the church that's put the pressure on there to have that done then? No one's put pressure on us to do that. We, my family, I mean, all the whole decided. The motorized thing, though. I mean, sorry, that on Say that again. Mormon, it, so sorry. So quit Mormon was obviously quite easy. You just put your details in. Send yeah, yeah. Now yep. notarized. Was that the church who's put this yeah. pressure on them to do that? Yep. Curtin and McConkie has made the allegation that lots of people were being requested to have their memberships taken out 
but they weren't actually doing it themselves. Ah, it was all like okay. people doing it on behalf of someone else. Okay. And I'm sure there's a time or two that that's happened. Um, but I also know people who have entered the church on false premises as well. Yeah. Um, so there's that, but, uh, they made it, the church made it really difficult. Um, they put a lot of red tape and hoops you had to jump through. And so my son, after having done the request has just never gone back and completed all the red tape. And so he's still on the rolls as well, but my entire family doesn't believe. See, I think, I think again, that that again, you know, quite often we talk about this um, leader roulette, um, you know, because my, my nephew and his wife recently um, got their name removed and it was as simple as they sent a letter off to the bishop of the ward and they got a response to say it was done and and it was that simple you know it, it, they didn't need to go through quit mormon they didn't have to get the notarized thing they just basically sent a letter describing why they wanted their name off it maybe not in much detail but and, and it was done so i guess it, it comes into the whole leader roulette thing isn't it like whether you have a leader who's just willing to accept and and that's the thing i love about our current bishop is that there was no questions asked I guess for some people they might find that problematic, but there was no outreach to try and get him to change his mind. He respected his wishes and and he had it done and he got a letter back saying that it had been done. Yeah. Ton of red tape, but um, for those who want to leave, I think it's well worth it. It's increasingly um, being reported, certainly to to us, that it seems to be a lot quicker, certainly, and cheaper to just contact your bishop. yeah. By rights, so they should be doing it. You know, if you're asking for your name to be removed, it, it should be done. It shouldn't be a matter of, no, we're not doing it or no reply. It, it should be done there and then if you're asking in, for it. In democratic countries, you should be able to leave a religious system pretty easily. Yeah. Right? I, you should be able to say, I don't want to be a member of your church anymore. Please take me off the list. And it should happen. I think with the new guidelines in the UK about data protection and the right to be forgotten, um, which is Europe-wide, I think a simple letter legally has to be followed up and complied with. Otherwise, yeah. So I think I think there's reasons why that's not as necessary at the moment, certainly for us in Europe. Um, Alana, you had more questions? Yeah, so Doug Vincent, I was just getting to that and then he reminded me on the chat, but I was going to ask you. So he's asking, does Bill still judge Tennessee walking horse competitions? I don't even know what a Tennessee walk. I know what a Tennessee walking horse is, but I don't know what a Tennessee walking horse competition is. Anybody, do you guys know what that is? No. I don't, um, I don't think so. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm looking on, him up Doug. right now. Give us more. Come on, Doug. <laughs> yeah, Doug, please tell us what please a elaborate. tell us what you're asking. <laughs> it seems like a snarky question, but I don't know what he means by I it. Love so. Doug. Okay. I, was, I was wondering if that was Doug trying to be funny, to be fair. I wasn't sure. Um, have... I've never judged a horse competition, by the way. <laughs> do you have more, Alana? Do we have more um, questions? I'm just trying to see, I think. Okay, I'll jump in with this while you're having a look. Um, do you know, has Radio Free Mormon had his second anointing? It's it's too sacred for him to share. So uh, that's what we need. Um, we need here's what I know. Scoop. Yeah, here's what I know. He says things about as blunt as I do, just about. And he said a lot of things, and nobody seems interested in excommunicating him, do they? They they must really really like him. <laughs> I mean, yeah. 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 Um, I, I think I think he must be up there with the Nemo's of the. 
the yeah. podcast. <laughs> I don't know how Nemo to this day has not had a letter already. I don't know Nemo's how doing a fan. Said. We are not to share I mean, our out, most sacred he's, experiences. He's, out, he's outright said to people, you know, to vote opposed and things like that. And to me, that should be instant, like, right, you're up for discipline, mate. <laughs> but, I think the church learns, though. It's learned over the past few years that when you excommunicate high-profile names, yeah. it, it doesn't really go well, right? Like more people find out and go down the rabbit hole and end up leaving. Yeah. I mean, certainly when it was, um, when, when our friend Peter Bleakley of Mormon Civil War was recently excommunicated, I mean, I was really concerned about what that was, what that was going to do to, because it's all about me. But um, you know what I was going to do to me, and uh, I, I honestly, I just feel like if it was Nemo too, I, I just don't know how how I would handle that. Um, see, we 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 claim you guys. I mean, you don't have to. The, Peter Nemo, um, they they are active. Radio Free Mormon. Um, you know, obviously, the fact that he's not active is completely bloody irrelevant as to whether or not. I have the right to claim you as part of my church community. And, you know, Bill, you, you're at where you're at and you're part of my spiritual journey. Of course, I'm going to claim that too. So, yeah. Um, do you have more questions, Alana? So, um, Debbie had asked, how diverse is the audience of Mormonism Live? Yeah, I kind of expected it to fall into certain age groups, right? Like that, maybe that 30 to 50 year old. But what I found was that when we look at the demographics of who's listening, uh, we found that it's pretty spread evenly all the way from a young adult, 18 years old, up to um, mid to late 60s. Um, the numbers are pretty even. Every age group seems to have about the same number of or same percentage represented in our audience. So the uh, 55 to 70 year olds uh, was almost the same percentage as the 30 to 45 year old, for instance. Um, it, it does seem striking. You would think it's certain age groups, but I think uh, we know that the youth are leaving in greater significant numbers, but I think the adults all across the age spectrum are leaving in similar numbers. Yeah. Less, yeah. Le less so than the youth, but equal to each other. Cool. I, I, think, that, I think that's probably that, most that of the questions. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm willing to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I have a, a sort of final question before we start to wrap up. Um, you made some predictions, uh, prophecies about the church a little while back. And yeah. uh, they were you pretty did. much on the money. Oh, yeah. This you is, did. This is the source of all the information. <laughs> um, would you share some predictions for the future of the church? What, what do you see happening next? Oh, man. Um, I don't know about specifics. I haven't heard from that source in a bit. But what I do think is I think the church will continue to water itself down. It cannot be this rigid and dogmatic, but I also think that doesn't fix the problem. I think if they water it down, people are less loyal, people are less energized, people are less in, uh, invested. <clears throat> and so uh, the watering it down will bring less criticism, but it will bring less energy from the believing membership as well. 
And so I, I don't know that I have any specific thing to say other than I think you'll continue to see the church soften up and make changes that water it down, but they will continue to articulate that the gospel continues to be the same and never changing. Yeah. Yeah, I remember saying that to you, Jane, didn't I, that, you know, but doctrine never changes. Like I said that to Solo, because it was was what I was taught. And I I wasn't thinking for myself and I wasn't realising. And again, it took for Jane to explain to me, but it has changed. Look at all of these things, you know, like, and and, and it kind of blew my mind a little bit because I'm like, Again, I've I've been told it, so why why would I doubt that that wasn't the case when that's what I've been told? Um, yeah. So it's it's just crazy now when I when I see where I'm at now, and I still believe I'm only a tiny tiny small part. I think I've still got long ways to go. Uh, Jane keeps saying she loves watching it all unfold. Oh, you know? it's so cool! It's um, so cool. As more and more realizations come come to my mind, but um, I, I'm annoyed because there's something I was going to say and it's gone from and, my mind. I, I mean, there there I is Charlie. That- Let's just say there's Charlie Harrell's book, This Is My Doctrine. And if you read mm-hmm. that book, you recognize that it's not just the policies and the 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 little things that have changed. Every single thing in Mormonism has changed to the point where it seems obvious to at least me that nothing was ever the same. And if nothing's ever the same, then at what point was Mormonism true? Is it true today? Mm-hmm. Was it true in 1820? Was it true in 1850 when Brigham yep. Young was running it? Was it true in, in uh, 1980 when Bruce R. McConkie was in charge of kind of what we all collectively believed? Um, at what point was Mormonism true? And at which point were prophets telling the facts about how God did things, yeah. right? Like the garments couldn't be changed until they were changed. And the temple endowment was the mind and will of God exactly as it was delivered to Joseph Smith, except today's endowment is nothing Very like different. the endowment. Yep. Yep. It, at what point that, is Mormonism what I was going true? To say there, the, the temple's a great example of it. You yeah. Know, recently, yeah. how much it's changed, and probably over the years, but I wasn't aware of all the horrible things. Oh, lots of horrible things. Ago. We're still making our way with Alana. Our, our time before Mormonism Live, we, we spend uh, about a couple of hours um, going through the CES letter. It's, Alana's still in CES time, letter yeah. um, space. It's, it's I've always so wanted to read that. I just never got around to reading it. So. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, I I think what what I really love is the fact that while I am super biased towards, I want people to stay in the church because it's better with you there. It just is. Um, I prefer a church with people who can sit in the pews next to each other, doubting and angry and all of those things and that to be okay. Um, Just notice, by the way, mm-hmm. notice that whenever you leave complete orthodoxy and you move into a space where you have questions, doubts, or disbeliefs, notice, and I'm saying this mainly to the viewer, but you two can maybe pick up on this as well. Notice that we always in the church have to articulate the ground we hold as more faithful than it really is. By the time you say, I have doubts, you almost always have disbelief, but you don't say that. By the time you say you have some disbeliefs, you generally are disbelieving in the whole thing. Like Mormonism manipulates all of us into couching our words more faithful than what they actually are. Notice that people like Terrell Givens, Patrick Mason, Richard Bushman, Fiona Givens, notice that they articulate privately very different 
ways of believing than what they articulate publicly. Mm. Uh, when Bushman was in a private meeting and being recorded and he must not have known it or something, he's like the whole, you know, the dominant narrative isn't true. When we interviewed Patrick Mason, he said a lot of things off the record that he wouldn't have said on the record. When, when I've had conversations with Terrell Givens in private, uh, there are things he said that he would absolutely not want you to know that he said uh, on a public collective, uh, knowing that he said it. So almost everybody in the church, when they start to become nuanced and are deconstructing and losing belief, notice how much pressure is on each of us to frame our, our, the language of what we're thinking inside our head all, practically dishonestly, right? We're all to some degree having to say it differently publicly than we really think inside our heads. And notice that a high demand fundamentalist religion has that kind of power over you. And I don't think I shared this um, when a couple of weeks ago, um, the week after Alana had voted opposed, um, I had shared the experience that I had where I got to have a chat with uh, my bishop about the podcast and um, that the effect that it had had made me decide that I'm, I'm going to return my temple recommend. If we can't all go, then then I'm, you know, we'll hand it back until yeah. such a time. And, uh, but what I, what I didn't share was, um, you know, the, the conversation that I had with you, Alana, where I was talking about how if you would have been there, if you would have heard me, you would have been ashamed of me. And Alana was like, no, 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 no. You say what you say. And I'm like, no, it, because I was back in this situation with an imbalance of power, I suddenly I'm hearing myself not say things that I would normally say, or I'm couching it in more appropriate language. Um, and I've, I want to make sure that never happens again. So the other day when missionaries are asking me to, um, would I send a video where I'm bearing testimony of the sacrament? Absolutely. That's, I'm more than happy to do that. But the language that I was using wasn't what they were looking for. I was, you know, they're looking for, I bear my testimony. Hello, I'm Sister Christie and close in the name of Jesus Christ and speaking in a way that's not how I speak. Um, and I, I can do that. Um, yeah. Anyway, my, my joy is that as much as I hold this space, that I love to watch people and their spiritual journey growing, whether that takes you out of the church and that's right for your spiritual growth or you know whether it takes you to a place of ambiguity whatever's right for you I just love watching people unfold in this journey um based on that um I, I guess what I would like to ask just in closing is if you have any wishes for the church wishes for the ex-mormon community the mormon community what what would you like to see happen for the people uh Inside the church, we don't have one single healthy story of somebody who leaves. Every story we paint about people who leave is a lack of faith. They wanted to sin. They're the yep. chafe among the wheat. Uh, they're the tares. They're apostates. They are lazy learners. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's Emma, whether it's Thomas Marsh, Simon's writer. He left because his name was spelled wrong. Do we really, like, if you sit and think about it, does, do we really think he left because his name was spelled wrong? Um, I, I would start by stop bad mouthing people who leave. Yep. It is hard. Amen. It is hard to deconstruct a thing that you invested your entire being into. 
that you wanted nothing more than to be true. And uh, it's time. It's We're in 2022. It's time for the LDS church to back off and go like, hey, we're, we're honestly probably a big part of the problem. And to honor just as much as that kid who leaves the Catholic church and comes to Mormonism, and we applaud him and say how brave he is, we ought to honor the people who leave Mormonism in the same way. Absolutely. Amen. Thank you for that. Yeah. Okay. Tell us about tonight. What are you and RFM and Maven going to be getting up to? Yeah. So tonight, and actually I'm a little out of the loop because it's not my week to prepare. But what Ooh. I do know is that we have a surprise female guest and we're going to be talking about women in the church and how the church frames it in terms of women having certain roles and things to do. And uh, we'll have a conversation that centers around feminism uh, and Mormonism and how those two mesh and clash with each other. Um, so that's that's the topic for tonight. Cannot wait. Absolutely Ooh. cannot wait. This is going to be a good one. Yeah. Okay. Well, in closing, uh, one thing that um, Alana and I have found empowering and important um, is just to be able to um, bless the journeys of the people with whom we come into contact. Um, Bill, we are so thankful for all your work. Um, the impact that it's had on us as individuals, being able to help us figure mm -hmm. things out and just is super, super intellectually stimulating. It's really good stuff. Mormonism is fascinating. And thank you for talking about that and the amount of research and work that you do. We, so we, um, as, as friends and as, as humans, as um, as women in the world, we just want to bless you as you continue to do your work and um, to be able to bless that you can um, have the rest and the the energy that you need to be able to do all that that you want to do in the world and to your family too that they are they are they are blessed also um thank you so much for giving us all of this time tonight um let's stay in touch and maybe come back and see us soon um there is so much more that we could talk about but thank yeah. you for your time and back at thank you, you 21st century saints like go hit the like button hit the subscribe button um uh it, when you guys and i would encourage you as soon as you want to uh, set up some type of donation thing. Folks, give to 21st Century Saints. One of the things I learned early on, I, I thought that when I started this, that John DeLynn and I would be kind of competitors, right? Like we're both vying for an audience. We're both vying for donations. And the reality is, I think they they said something about uh, uh, more, sh you know, more ships raise the tide or whatever it is. Um, I deeply, he he made it very clear from the very beginning that he was my friend and my ally and he was here to help me be as successful as I could be. And anytime I've run into a problem where he further along in this journey of running an entity that creates content, anytime I ran into a glitch, he helped me resolve that. He would give me advice, say, Hey, who here's who you talk to. Um, this is the person you should use for this. This is the, and it's all been golden. And so I want to perpetuate that, which is anything I can do to help you guys be successful. Don't hesitate to let me know. We are all on the same team. Uh, the Brit Avengers and the whatever the American side of it is. I don't. Um, we we want to all work together because I think we have a common goal, which is to be good people, helping other people in a hard time have what they need to have the support to get through it and to reconstruct their life and their identity 
And so we're all on the same team and we are superheroes to some extent. It's, it's amazing, this community. So folks, go on YouTube, go on to 21st Century Saints. Please, please, please hit the subscribe button, hit the notification bell. And uh, when these ladies ask for some donations, please send some their way. Yeah, You guys are I did awesome. See, I did see someone commenting about um, hitting the a donation button on YouTube, but I'm pretty sure, Jane, you said that you have to have so many subscribers. Yeah, 2,000, yeah. I think. Get, get us some more subscribers, get guys, and we'll do that. that. So in, in the meantime, in we the meantime, there's a... We a link on our Facebook page uh, yeah. for the time being until we get stuff sorted. A piece of advice that John Dillon gave me, and I'll give you, there's a, program, a website called DonorBox. And okay. DonorBox makes it really easy to set up a donation platform. It'll cost you nothing. Uh, they'll take out whatever, 2% of your donations. And then people can donate through Venmo, PayPal, uh, Stripe. Um, they can have it withdrawn from their bank. It is the easiest platform to use, and I highly recommend it. What was Thank it called you again? So much. DonorBox, D-O-N-O-R-B-O-X. Yeah, and we'll get that information out to all the Brit Avengers so that you yeah. can support where you would like to support. Um, UK leaders, I hope we've been able to show you uh, a little bit about Bill Real, about how he clearly has integrity, uh, clearly has motivations that might not be the same as yours, but they are certainly of value and they are honest and good and we certainly value all his work. Um, so if you come into this space, you're gonna you're gonna hear from him. Um, yeah, he's a good guy. Um, stay in touch. Don't forget to tune into Mormonism Live tonight. We will see you next week when we are going to be doing something in the realm of therapy. I don't think this has been done online before and we are really excited to be able to tell you a bit more about it as the week goes on. So be good and uh, we bless all y'all's journey. Good night. Bye everyone. Have a great night.